Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Good evening and welcome to the History of Alchemy podcast. I'm Travis Dow and today I have a special guest. And before we get started, I'd like to read you a poem called The Publishing of Robert Boyle's The Skeptical Chemist, 1661. Past the tongues of history, unimpressed by chemistry, bellies full of mercury, dissolve into a strange caduceus, nature's lowest denizens, promise pure medicines, mixed in double pelicans, invented by the daftest alchemists. Seven metals led to gold, seven stages, vitriol, seven lifetimes, never old, a skeptic, seven silver syllables. Welcome to my lab, my friend. This is where the world will end. Death will run amok and then we'll rearrange the symbols. Now that poem is written by Robert Olson, and that is who I have on the show today. And he does, he's not just a poet. He is a, I mean, obviously the, the poem is about alchemy in this case. He writes poetry about other things as well. Um, but I had him on the show because um, we've had conversations about alchemy over the years. And in fact, I met him um, through the Ask Historian subreddit. And not everybody, I realize not everybody knows what Reddit is or is on Reddit necessarily, or even thinks Reddit is a good thing. Uh, but Ask Historians is awesome. There's like real historians there and you can ask them questions. And they have their own podcast, in fact, and I've been on that show. And they stuck me, we did an AMA, which is an Ask Me Anything. And you, literally, Reddit takes that literally. You just, you know, hey, what did you have for breakfast this morning to, you know, what's Paracelsus's views on relating metals to planets, you know? And they stuck me with this guy. And I had no idea who he was, but it turns out he was awesome. He kind of filled my gaps. Cause, so the, the AMA was on alchemy, occult, and magic. And I'm pretty good at the alchemy and occult part, but Rob is pretty good at all three. So that was awesome. So uh, welcome to the show, Rob. And um, yeah, welcome to the History of Alchemy. Hello. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me, Travis. It's great to be here. Yeah. How are you? Yeah. So first of all, so Rob is in Thailand. And when we did the AMA a couple of years ago, I was in Prague, the Czech Republic. Now I'm in California. But in the case of preparing this episode and the case of the Ask Me Anything, um, that always turned out to be great because we ended up kind of working in shifts. Like I would take a look at the outline or I would answer questions on the AMA and then I'd go to bed and, you know, Rob would take over or, you know, that kind of thing. So um, <laughs> 20, 24 hour cycle that. Yeah, it works. We, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Stop. So. Um, yeah, so we already did an episode on the the Ask Me Anything. Pete kind of filled in for some of your answers, or uh, he would read the questions, I'd read the answers. Um, 
so I don't we don't have to repeat a lot of that stuff. I just want to point that out that there is an episode out there that we did uh, a while ago now, a year ago, maybe more um, on the Ask Me Anything. And so some of the the better questions really we distilled the Ask Me Any the AMA down and read some of the better questions and even some of the other replies by other people and because um, because there were there were oh man. Dozens of questions. I don't remember how many. A hundred? Two? Well, the, uh, uh, dozens, in any case. I don't remember. Yeah, um, I, th- I think at, at the end of it, there was something like 500-plus comments. Yeah, five. Yeah, comments all together. Because yeah. there were some great replies by other people and um, just really interesting conversations as a whole. Uh, you know, as overall, the Ask Me Anything was bigger than, than the both of us. I mean, it was, it was, it was pretty cool. And um, so, yeah, I, you know, so I just want to point that out. It's it's a, a quite a few episodes back, but people can go back and listen to that. Um, and it is on the occult and alchemy. There's some examples of using alchemy uh, magic. I mean, sorry. And there's there's examples of using magic in uh, alchemical recipes. And yeah, I mean, we'll get into some of that tonight, too. But um, yeah, if you guys want to hear if you like what you're hearing tonight, there's much more. That's 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 what I'm trying to say. So uh, now that being said, we we the AMA was so big that we did not get to all the questions. So I got a question. This is actually one since we did that episode. This is a question I've been meaning to ask you, and I don't know if you've given this some thought or not. But um, uh, if assuming you've listened to that episode, um, are there any questions that you wanted to bring up that like that Pete and I didn't talk about? Was there a good one yeah. that we missed? Yeah, there was actually a, a one that I, it was actually the most exciting question for me that uh, wasn't mentioned in the the yeah. podcast that you that you did about the AMA with Pete, and uh, I, I wanted to use that. Uh, I think it would make a really good opening for the conversation that we are uh, about to have, um, which is going to be a pretty awesome conversation. So, yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, the question it was from a guy named uh, Sr. Find, um, and he he or she asked, uh, "What did alchemy lack?" that prevented it from becoming a science despite centuries of effort. Ah, and, uh, okay. Yeah. Good, good question. Right. Exactly. So uh, my response was that it, it actually it wasn't a matter of what it lacked that prevented it from being uh, taken seriously uh, towards the end of the Renaissance and into the Enlightenment. It was actually, it was, it was in, a, in abundance of, of language that really caused a lot of problems, especially um, towards uh, the, the really the big height of the Royal Society with Robert Boyle and, and Isaac Newton, and it was uh, an overabundance of things like metaphors, analogies, um, and correspondences. Uh, so, to get, give a few examples, um, what I my response was: uh, in other words, many texts were and are still today unreadable. We've got metaphors from the Admiral Tablet. The sun is its father, the moon is its mother, the wind hath carried it in its belly, the earth is its nurse. We have all these analogies. Fire is hot and dry, earth dry and cold, the water cold and moist, the air moist and hot. That's from Agrippa's three books on occult philosophy. And then we have all sorts of correspondences. So the Saturn is to lead, as Jupiter is to tin. Mars is to iron, as the moon is to silver. And dot, 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 it goes on. Gold in the sun and all that uh, from Basil Valentine's Last Will and Testament. And, uh, so the issue is that 
there wasn't any one way to talk about a single alchemical process. There were there was dozens of ways. We had the green lion. We had the water-bearing women. Uh, all all the serpent beneath the tree with the bird and the serpent meets the tree and the serpent eats its own tail. And it's like, what do these things mean? So this overabundance of language was the problem. And it was Robert Boyle with his uh, skeptical chemist, actually, which is mentioned in the poem, um, where he talks, where he demands basically to the Royal Society that we need to all agree, what are these four elements? What are the elements that we are working with? What are these chemicals? And we need to agree on a single name for all of them. So mercury is mercury. Mercury is not the green lion. Mercury is mercury. And we need to agree yeah. that sulfur is the, sulfur. The, 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 yeah. thing, the thing that we need to emphasize here is that, yeah, it's the um, different ways of saying the same recipe, basically, like the same chemical process. You would have... Yeah hundreds of yeah metaphor yeah i mean yeah exactly like you said but the the emphasis that i want people to the listeners to really understand is that there were many recipes hundreds you know for the philosopher's stone for uh creating you know um um creating fake gold even lookalikes hundreds of recipes but you take a single recipe you still have hundreds of ways to describe it and it's mm -hmm. yeah. So of course, and and these these ways all by the way added up, and um, I don't know if you how you're going to get into this or when you're going to get into this, but yeah, it just kind of there was this culture among alchemists, among uh, court society, among the nobility, of using this flowery language of um, writing what should be chemical um, processes. But using this really poetic, borrowing from Greek mythology and um, you name it, you know, just to try to outdo one another, which means as time progresses, you get more and more of this. And it becomes so weird and obscure and and flowery and and uh, um, even people that profess to be like, OK, I'm going to be the alchemist that just lays it on the table. I'm going to say it plain as day. And then, you know, and then it's okay. So the take the philosophical mercury and yeah. And then, you know, the green dragon, this, and, and it was like, wait, okay, what, what's philosophical mercury? Because, you know, um, yeah, yeah, even then it yeah. just seems like no one's really, because like you said, there was no definition of what are we really going to, how, okay, let's once and for all define mercury. What is mercury? Um, because people didn't agree, you know? People didn't yeah. agree that it was an element on the, you know, on the periodic table because that didn't exist, you know, et cetera. Um, so oh, it was it was an essence. It was more than just the physical mercury that you're, that you're seeing. It you was know, simply, un, yeah, it was simply unripe iron done. It was unripe tin or unripe lead. It was I mean, there were so many different theories out there of what mercury itself was. Um, yeah. Because they it was, yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. Just just to point out that the problem you're talking about was a serious problem, and trying to resolve this problem was, in a very direct sense, um, very important to the history of science. And what led to these these like let's let's agree on a definition that became a global standard. That became a global definition. Like the you know let's call these elements by these uh, abbreviations. Uh, that's an international standard today, you know, and it started yep. back then with, okay, let's agree on what the heck is mercury, um, you know. So, oh, yeah, 
critically yeah, and it important. Was, so it was a uh, yeah, it was and it was it was Robert Boyle. He was the first one to really he was he was yeah. the first one to stand up in front of the Royal Society and put his foot down and be like, enough of this nonsense. And uh, he he essentially and many people agreed with him. And he he essentially um, uh, I know it's a harsh word to use, but he essentially killed alchemy right then and there, 1661. Um, the 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 metaphorical alchemy the enigmatic language um alchemy it was boom right then and there it's like be done with it and anybody else who did uh wrote alchemical texts after that just weren't taken seriously yeah not okay. by the royal society not by the royal right society. see now, yeah now that's an interesting point because there are there are later alchemists um and you have to be kind of aware of like okay if you're talking about an alchemist in germany uh, his local his local patron might still be a true believer, and so that guy might be safe and might be taken mm. seriously and have a very high status. So, yeah. uh, but yes, so I I never um, for me I say yeah the first the beginning of the end was before then because even Robert Boyle stood on the shoulders of giants so to speak um, he had influences um, but yeah 1661. Um, and then that's kind of the beginning of the end. Uh, and then for me, the final, you know, the final, like when, when you can, when you can say that even in Germany, I mean, where is it just done? Like when no one is taken seriously anymore is I pick a nice round uh, towards the, you know, turn of the century number. So I pick um, John Bolton, uh, just atomic theory. Is that what, is that what it's called? The atomic theory, 1807, yeah. 1809. And I mm -hmm. say, okay, there now there was oh in the in the 17th century we have conservation of mass, we have uh, conservation of oh you know some some really fundamental chemical principle uh, you know chemistry principle pr principles of chemistry, um, but by 1807 and I like that date because it's close to 1800 so it's easy to remember. I say it's done. Like then like he's defined now the atomic theory. People now know what uh, an element really like. There's a now we have our modern concept of what mercury truly, truly is, and as far as we to this day know what it truly, truly is, as far as you know subatomic uh, theory and quantum physics and all that. But yeah, I mean, I mean, we we now I guess we know what mercury is, um, and we we knew in 1809 for sure. And anybody that didn't read John Bolton's work, it's their own fault and. Uh, alchemy was dead for sure, if not before. Um, yeah. But yeah, yeah. I, I mean, yeah. I don't disagree with you at all. Like, yeah. It's it's it was it was just a slow, dying process. It didn't happen overnight. Not everyone read Robert Boyle who should have, and and uh, that sort of thing. But yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, uh, speaking speaking of Germany, I mean, we had uh, Athanasius Kircher who was working at the same time as Boyle, who was writing all sorts of alchemical texts. Um, I think. Uh, I think, yeah, I think Robert Boyle's skeptical chemist definitely put a a bit of a kibosh on Kierker's work. Um, okay. Yeah. Towards towards the towards the last uh, decade of Kierker's life. Uh, ah, interesting. Yeah. yeah okay. I don't, yeah, I, I don't think I've ever looked into that. I'll have to because there's um. So I haven't done a, an episode on Boyle yet because um. Speaking of German alchemists, um. First, I want to do an episode on Daniel Sennert. Have are you familiar with him? No, no, not at all. So, especially, so if, um, in, in, I don't know if this is like German historian circles or, or what, but, but in, in certain circles, I like, I have definitely read in German, um, 
that Robert Boyle is basically just a plagiarist. And all the theories, all the theories, is Daniel centered. And Robert Boyle is no more than a translator. Like, that's, you know, that is the most extreme view of that theory. And I'm sure the truth is somewhere in between. Um, but so first, I need to do an episode on Daniel Sennert, which is started but not done. And then I got to do Robert Boyle. So then, yeah, anybody, um, yeah. So then, if, you know, the after effects of Boyle um, would be a great follow-up. You know, there's, yeah, because like you said, it all changed. Even in people's lifetimes, you know, they were suddenly, um, yeah. Kind of, kind of like, kind of like everything changed in John D's lifetime. Everything changed. Who was alive in Robert Boyle's lifetime? Again, yeah, two generations yeah. later. Yeah. So going back, we were talking about um, about how Robert Boyle had essentially put his foot down and called an end to all of the crazy metaphors and and and, and analogies and weird correspondences and this sort of thing, and. Um, that's essentially what I am most interested in is, well, before Robert Boyle had put his foot down, we, we did have all of this enigmatic language, all of these metaphors, these analogies, these weird symbols, um, these crazy engravings. Um, and really, my question is, where, where did this idea come from? You know, how did we get to a point where we were describing nature using all of these weird symbols for metals and corresponding mm -hmm. metals to planets and plants to animals and colors and runes and all of this kind of stuff, um, and then mixing them all into these really sort of abstract, almost surreal um, um, uh, wood engravings describing yeah. alchemical processes and changes in nature. Is so how how did it how did it get to that point uh, where it kind of got out of hand to where the Royal Society decided that uh, yeah we need to put an end to this it's getting a little a little too all over the place we yeah. can't we can't sit down and have a coherent conversation would, with one another would you also agree with the statement that so it did get worse over time like I I have the sense that if you read Zosimos. He's giving you alchemical equipment in as direct language as he can, as far as measurements and how things should fit snugly, you know, quoting Miriam the Prophetessa or Miriam the Jewess, um, you know, being very exact. Uh, and then later you have Arab um, alchemist uh, Abu Fala keeps coming to mind right now because I just I'm reading him, but he he didn't have a, a single unique thought. Everything he wrote was from somebody else. Um, but one of the things he writes was, okay, here's, you want to make gold? Here's how you make gold from copper and you yellow it this way and you do this and this. Now he also had, he also had weird recipes that he was clearly just repeating about, uh, kind of homunculi and how to create a basilisk and the, you know, those kind of things. Um, but also pretty straightforward once some of them are very straightforward on how to create silver from tin. And you know he's not talking about silver. He's talking about okay, it's it's you know something that will hold up to a couple of tests, and you could probably sell it as silver or gold. Um, but you see just from what he's talking about that it's not you're not making silver or gold, but it's it's as it's plain text. It's not um, well okay, it, not necessarily, uh, not everywhere, but it is something you can follow. Um, 
he might talk he does mention philosophical mercury uh for example that's why i say not necessarily uh uh, but he also does. He does def define it, though. He does ex explain what it is, and then say, "Okay, so now once you have it, here's what you do with it. Basically, uh, here's the things you can do with it." And he lists a dozen. So, back to the question. Yeah. You know, then it got. I would say they. You know, people added on that when Latin sources got a hold of it. Were there just like translation errors from Hebrew, Arabic? Uh, you know, who knows what? Were you know. Did it? Did these compound things? Why did it get so flowery, so different? Well, I think uh, I think really what it was was it was it was um, attempting to take this concept of of forms from from Aristotle and Plato and incorporate them into into in with other ideas. So we had this uh, syncretism that was going on where they were mixing these ideas from all over the place. But, and so they were, they were kind of changing what it, what form meant, what was a cause, what was a principle underlying, underlying matter that gave rise to matter. And as these ideas started to change more and more and, and form, was modified more and more as an as a philosophical concept. Um, it just it it opened itself up to uh, basically yeah. a, a, anybody and everybody who wanted to wanted to contribute an idea or think of it a different way. Um, we, I mean, you got to you got to keep in mind that like uh, you know you let's say you you go to the New Age section of uh, of a Barnes and Noble or Borders book bookstore and uh, you know I mean. It, a good 60 70% of it is like just any old person that wants to write a self-help book you know yeah the times have not changed you know a thousand years ago people were doing the same exact thing they're just stepping up and saying like i can be an author too i can be a philosopher and you know, just I, knocking I, out whatever they whatever I can, they feel i can be a history podcaster relevant. <laughs> wait what <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, yeah, yeah. There, yeah, there were no I, standards. There was no uh, PhD after your name. No, no. Oh. There were, there were. You know, there were monks with. Uh, there were doctorates of the church or whatever they were called, and and so forth uh, in the Middle Ages. Um, mm. But yeah, generally, you know, if if your book sounded learned and clever, that was your qualification. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, or in Thomas Aquinas's case, when the uh, ST was added to the beginning of his name, of course he became, uh, uh, you yeah. know, saint. Of course he became, uh, you know, that's essentially a PhD times ten. Yeah. Yep. On exactly. theology. Yeah. So, <laughs> but but yeah. So so talking about all this all this language and this this crazy language. So where where does it come from? You know. And uh, so I've been looking into into um. Well, my friend and I, we're we're working working together on this. We we uh, began with um. Well, with the analogies, with the correspondences. You know, the um, uh, Mars and iron, and Saturn and lead and the color black and the bear and the black poppy plant and this kind of stuff and and well where did it come from you know at some point people didn't think that there was a connection between the planet Saturn and the black poppy plant you know so uh, my big question was well who was the first who was the first to say that well and but 
even before that, well, who was the first to say that plants and animals corresponded? And who was the first to say that a plant, a planet, and a zodiac sign corresponded to one another? Um, mm. So this is, yeah, really what we've been looking at, and it's been it's been really really exciting so far um, with uh, this this paper that we're working on, and we've um, we've actually we did manage to locate the very first person who. Uh, created correspondences between, um, not created, but uh, devised uh, correspondences between animals, plants, and minerals or stones. And we did find the very first person to come up with the idea that planets correspond to uh, certain zodiac signs. And we did find the person who took both of those people's ideas and connected them into one. So it's uh, it's been really interesting uh, sort of mapping out a genealogy, like reconstructing a now, family tree in a way. Yeah. Um, so can, can you give that, that can you give that away or is that something we have to wait for for your for your book to come out? Oh no, I'm I'm more than happy to talk about it if you if you uh, so, would, so, would have it. Yeah. Um, we can, we can first, talk about some specific people. Yeah, like the first Okay, like specifically the first to come up with a correspondence between – so there, there was like specific animals and specific planets, specific minerals and specific planets, and specific metals and specific planets. Is that correct? Um, no, actually. It was um, before the planets were ah, okay, even okay. – before the planets were even attributed to the Zodiac, um, there was uh, – was, it was Pliny the Elder – from the first century uh, AD, and he was the one. He wrote a book called Natural History, and it was it was essentially it was an encyclopedia of animals, plants, and minerals, stones, gems, this mm -hmm. sort of thing. And he went into great detail for pages and pages and pages on how um, this plant has this. Um, these attributes and these attributes are similar to these this plant's attributes and both of their attributes are similar to this this gem's attributes so oh. wait so yeah, I, I, I was see, i was about to ask okay so it's like a classification of plants like uh these two are trees and these two have a long stem and these two are flowering plants but not but no not necessarily because uh, so what would a plant? So what kind of gems? I mean, what what define an attribute? Give me an example. Okay, like, what uh, would a plant have in common with a gem? A good example would be like if a if a plant opens only a certain time of the year. Like let's say ah, there's okay. there's let's I could say see that corresponding to a zodiac sign already or a specific yeah. Con you know yeah okay. So, so let's let's say there's like a, a plant that remains dormant during the winter, right? Mm -hmm. And then in the in the spring it comes back up. In the winter you would think that it was dead. It's nowhere to be found. It's under the snow. Right. But but it's not. It's still alive. Well, this attribute of this plant is very similar to the bear hibernating during the winter. Yeah. So yeah, now okay. we've got yeah. this. Now we now we've got this correspondence between a bear and a certain plant, and then from there he goes to well, what's the the things that sleep for very long times? Well, we have this one stone that's black. So now the bear corresponds to this black stone, and yeah, like like that. Okay. So Pliny, yeah. Pliny I mean, the Elder wrote this 
Okay. Yeah, big encyclopedia about all this. Yeah, I could think yeah. of later examples like that. So that's that's in, yeah. Okay, so Pliny is yeah, because that's clearly um, oh yeah, like Arabic um, classifiers. You know, would classify <laughs> minerals. All well, everything, but but minerals is what comes to mind based off of how they look, how they react. Uh, interestingly, actually, how they react, which is almost like a, you know their chemical properties. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, really neat stuff because Pliny is obviously centuries before. So um, yeah, yep, that that's neat. Yeah, um, yeah. Okay, so then later, okay, so what about who was specifically because metals and planets is a really important one for alchemy. That one yes. comes up all the time. Um, who was the first to really kind of theorize some sort of connection? Well, it's actually before the metals even came in, it was Ptolemy in the uh, second century AD, about a hundred years after Pliny. And he was the one who he did all the math, the actual math um, to determine where the planets are in the sky at certain points during the year in relation to where the zodiac signs ah, um, okay, so are. He, he's laying the groundwork for like horoscopes and stuff centuries ago. Yes. Gotcha. Yes. Yes. Gotcha. So. Mm -hmm. yeah, so, okay. so he he did all the math in a book called uh, Al Almagest. I think yep. the, how you say it, Almagest. See, he did all the math. Yeah. We've mentioned for, that one on the show before, actually, a couple times. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but then it was his follow-up book of called uh, Four Books Tetra Biblos, and that's the one where he he lays the groundwork for actual astrology, and that's the one where he he claims that planets behave a certain way and zodiacs behave a certain way and and people under the influence of these um, have certain certain attributes or certain personality traits or certain physical features this sort of thing so he was kind of in a way that now he was incorporating like the body the human body into the relation between planets and the zodiac yeah uh, and this was a uh, hundred years after Pliny the Elder, and then it wasn't. It wasn't, and then it just kind of it just stayed there. And you know, we had our astrologers who, you know, could read read palms and read read facial features and stuff, and based on when you were born and do the do their whole thing. And then it was in in um, the fifth century A.D. when Proclus, mm -hmm. in a very 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 small one and a half page treatise he wrote called on magic and sacrifice and in this little treatise is where he connects the two ptolemy and pliny and he takes the sun as his example as one of the seven celestial spheres and he talks about how the sun because of how it behaves is now correspondent to this stone this this planet um, this plant and this animal and goes in order like that in the in the um in the little one and a half page treatise that he wrote so he essentially was the first person to take pliny and ptolemy and he combined the two into a single system which comes as no surprise that facino was marsilio facino um who really kick-started the whole hermetic movement of the Renaissance, was absolutely obsessed with Proclus. Yeah. Proclus now, basically laid the foundation for the full the full correspondence system. Yeah. Now, yeah. now 
Proclus is like a century or two at most, you know, a, a couple centuries after um, at, when the Hermetic tablet kind of pops up as far as like the the as above, so below um, kind of yes. saying. And and so the, the idea of now people like interpret, you know, started interpreting what that means. And then eventually that became applied to astrology as well. Like, mm -hmm. okay, so the planets, you know, the microcosm and macrocosm and, you know, uh, that whole line of thinking. And that's also an interesting, like, where did that start and where did... Um, so now Proclus is right around when you could almost have a hermetic influence saying, ah, okay, so he's associating plants and animals um, and, and minerals to each other. And now uh, Ptolemy is figuring out the planets and the with the zodiac okay mm -hmm. and now <laughs> we have proclus combining the two um yes. a century after you know hermes uh, the the emerald tr tablet is is kind of spoken of i don't know how old it is exactly i think that's murky but um yeah, yeah and, and you know but that's a, that's at least when it pops up for sure um a century before so um so so the but i wouldn't even say then that proclus necessarily had the idea like oh, okay so let's take this hermetic idea um and combine it but to a renaissance man it, it would sound like one and the same it'd be like oh yeah yeah of course the planets um uh, you know there's a there's a relationship between planets and minerals because the macrocosm affects the microcosm because as a, as above so below like they would have combined the you know the the thinking of alexandria third fourth century to later later neoplatonists like proclus and and um oh yeah i mean it would yeah it would have been one school of thinking to them basically and it all would have been ancient you know it all would have been like the ancients said the philosophers the philosophers said you know mm -hmm. so yeah yeah and it it actually it's it's really it's surprisingly logical because because in tetrabiblos Ptolemy corresponds not only the planets to the zodiac, but to to, to humans, to people, um, to the way they behave, um, uh, to to the way that they appear, the way that they talk, and it. So it just it's very very logical to take that and see. Oh well, people behave a certain way, and then if we look at Pliny, he's saying that animals behave a certain way, and therefore corresponds to stones and plants it's really surprising. It's, it's it's very logical to connect the two because of that that human and then animal um uh similarity between and, and ptolemy's work mm -hmm. it's, it's not really that much of a leap to say that well the human behaves this way because he corresponds to this and animal behaves this way because he corresponds to this well i walk on two feet and this bear is walking on two feet so well you just combine two into one system yeah i mean we we saw that we did an episode on uh and it had nothing to do with alchemy almost because it was going so far before we did it, an episode on like trying to get to the beginning of astrology you know using mm. the skies as definition not just horoscopes but like solar eclipses all kinds of events um shooting stars you know random events basically oh yeah um, yeah as 
as uh, you know, where did that start? Where did that? And it almost seems like human nature. If you see a solar eclipse, whatever's happening at that time, you draw a connection. You know, someone's giving birth. You're like, oh my goodness, a king was just born. I mean, you just that's just how humans would be to massive, uh, you know, events like that in the sky. Um, it just mm-hmm. seems supernatural, of course. Um, and and so we did this episode, and it turns out that oh yeah, you have you have clay tablets giving specific example. Examples in like you know Chaldean. Oh, the Chaldeans kind of formalized it. But but again, if you want, if you're talking primary sources, you're going bef- back before the Chaldeans. Um, to the Greeks, the Chaldeans were the primary sources. They were the ancients, uh, but they mm-hmm. weren't. You know, it goes back even further. And it's like um, there was a shooting star during this battle. So to the Sumerians, Akkadia, you know, to to one of the um, um, Assyrians or somebody. Uh, shooting stars meant victory in battle. Oh, you know, so if the king then won the battle, shooting stars was a good luck. If a different king, um, you know, lost a battle during a solar eclipse, then solar eclipses were bad. So, like, the same event could have different meetings. But you do see a, I don't want to say empirical, but yeah, it's like there's a connection. Like, this event happened at this, you know, during this um, astrological or astronomical event or uh, during this phase of the moon or whatever it was during the season. Um, So, therefore, you know, here's our correlation. Um, and, And later, the Greeks are just like, well... The Chaldeans said so. You know, there is no more tale mm-hmm. of a battle. It's just that it's just um, the Chaldeans say, you know, during in this constellation, don't go to war. And there's no reasoning behind it. There's no. Um, and of course, we talked about the natural cycle of farmers and the crops and people watching the heavens and um, noticing that, hey, this is when you harvest and this is when you plant. And oh, by the way. The temperature won't just tell you that the stars will too, you know, and that has been figured out. No one knows uh, where that primary source is because that, that is truly prehistoric. Um, yeah. So yeah, I mean it, yeah, yeah, it just, yeah, well, we, we could go down this rabbit hole forever. Like it's well, just really interesting stuff. <laughs> well, on, on, on the, on the top, you know, that actually the, 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 the Emerald tablet is essentially describing a, a solar eclipse. The moon, its mother, the sun is its father, and the two combine into one. Ah, I mean, okay, yeah, okay, right. Yeah, I was trying to think so, like what part. Uh, yeah, yeah, it makes sense. Sure. Yeah, from the very from the very ends of it, it's just, it's really it's based on yeah. the solar. Yeah, I mean, really, all of alchemy is based on eclipses. So that's yeah. yeah I mean, even uh, Miriam the Jewess, uh, you know, the two become one. The it, what is that called? Like Miriam's mantra or something? The you know the um, the doctrine the doctrine of Miriam the Jewess. It basically starts off uh, two becomes one, one you know one becomes I mean whatever. Oh like, yes, yes. Wait yes. a minute, yeah, that's actually okay. That's you know the the moon is passing that you know approaching the sun to become one, one become two or whatever. It, I forget one become three. I don't remember. Um, but like, oh my goodness, maybe that's just the first, that first mention might be a, just an eclipse. And then someone tied it to the, the stages of an alchemical recipe because you're combining two things to, be, to make a mixture. Um, yeah. It doesn't take yeah. a leap of faith to, you know, for that theory to make sense. No, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah I mean, tons of stuff going on. 
going on in the sky with uh you know there there's the sun is up and bright you can't see any stars and sudden the moon covers there's a full a full eclipse and during full eclipse bam there you can see it's mm-hmm. right there bright bright in the sky so the two combine and give birth to one yep yep couldn't see the, couldn't see the could the planet until the uh, until the moon and the sun combined yeah but mm-hmm. it's pretty neat you know the way a lot of these a lot of these concepts what we now call like uh, philosophical concepts underlying alchemy are very like they come straight from the sky from from observations of the sky just trying to make sense of it. yeah i sure. yeah i know this this continues now again um abu fala is that's who i'm gonna quote but he is not a primary source he was quoting um geber uh or al-razi but don't don't quote me on that um but now he was saying, okay, so he had um, the theory of, so there is an idea that, that I came across first through Sendivogius, but Sendivogius um, did not invent this. This was around for centuries before him, and it turns out the Arabs already had this theory, namely the theory that metals ripen, okay? So in nature, mm-hmm. gold is created in the earth through the right pressure, through the right combination of mercury and, and you know, the whole nine yards, and basically all alchemists are trying to do is replicate that natural process. That's the theory behind alchemy. And yeah. um, now Abu Fala had a... Basically saying a a planetary horoscope, uh, sorry, a, a metallic horoscope, because the, his his writings had a theory, which again he's not a primary source. I just want to make that clear. Um, but he had um, saying that as these metals are born in the earth, so first you have mercury, and as it ripens, it becomes lead, and that's why lead is you know easy to melt and so forth at the low melting point. And then it goes on to tin, and then to iron, and black iron, and um, then it goes on to copper, brass, uh, silver, and so forth, uh, gold. And and he says now when each step happens, that's not a coincidence because as Paracelsus would probably agree with, as you know everybody after him would probably agree with. Um, the metals are born in the right constellation, in the right, you know, tin is, um, oh, what is it? I'm going to say the wrong thing, but tin, uh, uh, well, copper is, is Mars. It's just like you have, you know, you are a Taurus or whatever. When a, when a metal is born in a certain constellation, that matters. The planet matters. So that's why, you know, they're, they're, the planets are, are matters. So we see this evolution of the theory between planets and metals and um we we see this getting you know then getting translated into latin and 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 so forth and um yeah oh yeah oh yeah sure it's 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 actually it's it's perfect that you brought us back around to the the arabic alchemists because uh the the next person on my list uh actually the next person in the in the in the family tree, um, is uh, Jabir. Uh, well, you you had said had said Gaber, um, right. but, uh, Jabir, yeah, yeah. Jabir ibn Hayyan. Uh, not to be for those people listening, not to be confused with uh, pseudo Gaber, who was um, um, we do believe a European. I wrote think. In, yeah, yeah, wrote in Latin um, for one. I mean, yeah. Yeah, yeah, but uh, the original Gaber, uh, Jabir ibn Hayyan, and um, uh, he had studied in the in the Far East. And it come back over, and it was him. He was the one next in line after Proclus, who brought metals into the fray. 
and he also brought his uh, theory of mercury, sulfur, and salt. So it was it was the, and it wasn't just him. It was a whole bunch of um, other scholars along with him. Uh, the, we refer to as the Jabirian school. So it was essentially the Jabirian school. They were the, in in the um, the seven hundreds and eight hundreds uh, A.D. who were also familiar with Pliny, Ptolemy, and Proclus, mm-hmm. and combined their studies of metals with their mercury, sulfur, and salt theory, and they mixed it with the with what Proclus was doing. So it essentially went from Pliny and Proclus combined, um, Pliny and Ptolemy combined, yeah. combined through Proclus. Jabir studied in the Far East and brought those ideas about metals over yeah. and studied Proclus as well and the other Neoplatonists, Plotinus, Iamblichus, um, and combined it all into one. So Jabir is actually the first who argues that Saturn is, corresponds to lead, corresponds to um, uh, the bear and the, yeah. and the pop, poppy plant no, uh, from, from Pliny and Ptolemy. Yeah. There's still one interesting distinction here because Jabir, as far as I know, is just going off of what it looks like. So Mars looks red, and therefore, uh, you know, it corresponds to copper. There's no, there's no theory about the metal is born in the time of, uh, you know, this or that. It's just, it's just more like, oh, silver is the moon, gold is the sun, and, and down from there. Um, yeah, yeah, so. yeah. No, it's, yeah. With the Ma- Mars and and uh, it was uh, it was actually it was it was iron, um, because oh, iron because, rusts. Yep. Yeah. 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 Right. Red. Yeah. What, a yeah. Bright red. And yeah. so, I, I always and, confuse tin and copper, and I think maybe different people have them different planets. I don't. I don't remember. Well, um, it, it 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 actually it it follows all the way through from from Jabir all the way through to Paracelsus. So with uh, okay. tin. Tin corresponds to Jupiter, Jupiter, uh, copper to Venus. Okay. Um, okay. Yeah. 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 So it's really neat, you know. So, so this is actually. So if anybody's wondering, where do the planets come come from? Uh, how did they get incorporated into all these crazy correspondences? Well, it essentially began in the Far East and came into the West around the seven uh, hundreds, the eighth century of uh, A.D. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So with Jabirian school. Yep. Yeah. And then from and then from there it was um Marsilio Ficino picked up on Proclus um and and Jabir as well and um yeah the rest is history the hermetic tradition building up Pico Mirandola Cornelius Agrippa to Paracelsus and Bruno giving us our our correspondence charts Yeah I'd love I'd love to know like the later ones Ficino Mirandola Agrippa how did they feel about eclipses compared to, um, you know, just did they were did they realize that so much of the metaphors were really directly related to eclipses, or had it taken on a whole other meaning by now? Because they were all interested in Kabbalah, they were all interested in hidden meaning and double meanings, and um, yeah. So yeah, it just kind of yeah, it, it evolved. I guess is is my point, or what I think is interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it 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 evolved it evolved so much, especially because um you know once once Ficino got his hands on 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 Proclus and and the Jabirian school, um he also went back and studied um, Ptolemy and Pliny, and then from there back to Aristotle and Plato. So mm-hmm. he was 
he was not only taking the Neoplatonic uh, uh, concepts that Proclus and Plotinus and Yalicus were all on about, but he was going back to sources and then reincorporating what he liked from Plato into Neoplatonism, into the alchemy that was occurring in the in the 700s and 800s. Um, so it was kind of like a uh, like a almost like a history in reverse sort of thing, you know. That there was this 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 almost seamless transition from Pliny to Ptolemy to Proclus to the Jaberian school, and then once it got to Ficino in the 1400s, he was kind of he was like continuing the trend by going back to the beginning and then working his way all through it, and um, uh, mm-hmm. basically. Pick- picking and choosing what he really liked the most about all of them. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, and in, yeah. In, 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 a, a good point to make here is Ficino, Mirandola, those guys, Agrippa, um, those guys are one of those filters where everybody that comes after looks at the past through them. Mm-hmm. Um, I like to, I like to think of those Renaissance as one, those Renaissance thinkers as one example of that, uh, Paracelsus himself is another. Um, yes. Everybody that came after Paracelsus, you know, was either even if they were anti-Paracelsian, they defined themselves as such. They defined, you know, first of all, they would define what Paracelsus thought and then tear it apart. Which means, yeah, I mean, he still gets he still gets mentioned, even if it's full of hate. Um, so everybody saw the filter. Every, you know, Paracelsus's works. Everybody first looked at what Paracelsus wrote, and therefore everything that came before was seen through that filter. Um, Ficino is a great example. Yeah, he, he, he combined everything from previous sources, but gave it his own twist. Paracelsus yeah. did that. Newton, Newton did that. Um, there's many examples. Uh, yeah, just, yeah. 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 Re, he re, he incor- reincorporated the Corpus Hermeticum, um, and uh, mm-hmm. the Chaldean oracles and all of that. It was, it's like really, if you want to think about it in a way, it's like, um, uh, in, in the sense of, uh, to use the metaphor of the family tree, um, looking at history this way, uh, Ficino is essentially, he's, he's the trunk of the tree. And everything before him, these are the roots that go into the ground, and they, they go off in all sorts of different directions. Uh, some of them connect up. You know, like Proclus would be like a main route, but then oh, that's interesting. The, yeah, yeah. Th- th- those roots come up. They all come up. They meet with Ficino, and then from Ficino we get the branches. One yeah. of those branch. One of those branches is the occult revival. One of those branches is um, uh, uh, the different alchemists, uh, Robert Boyle, Isaac Newton, mm-hmm. coming from a different direction. You got the, the rest of the Hermetic tradition, Paracelsus, Miranda, Agrippa, Bruno. Um, yeah. I, I, but, can, so, I, can, I can tell you like Ficino. See, I, 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 I don't disagree with that. That's definitely true. Like, like I said, Ficino is one of those guys um, that he's such a filter for later people that, yeah, yeah. okay, if he's a trunk of a tree, I, I could accept that. For me, that's it's interesting you say that because for me, I kind of always think of um, now. I wouldn't quite argue that Ramon Lull is that because he does not encompass the full breadth of the things that Ficino talks about. Um, mm-hmm. But Ramon Lull tries to like he's like one of the really early guys um, to try to make a Latin version of the Kabbalah. He's 
um, the really early guys that thinks of the dignitary, you know, brings these Kabbalist concepts into Latin and tries to make make Arabic uh, commentaries work with Christ- with Christianity, basically. And oh, and we have many examples of this. I mean, don't get me wrong. Um, uh, but yeah, he's just one of those one of those early ones that was in the right place at the right time. And I, I was like, OK, so for me, he's one of those bridges where uh, I would also argue that um, there was a time like I, I kind of in my mind, I categorized like there's Lullian alchemy and there's Paracelsian alchemy and 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 there's, you know, Zosimos alchemy. Everything is Zosimosian. Um, but yeah, so there's uh, Jabirian. I, you could you could argue is he's such an influence that there's Jabirian alchemy. Um, but Lul is one of those guys like for until Paracelsus came along, really. Um, everyone knew who Lul was. Everybody quoted him. He was another filter. He was another guy that if they looked at Arabic sources, a lot of time it was like through Lul's commentary or through, um, but he wasn't alone is the thing. He wasn't a single trunk. He was, um, there were, there were folks in the, in the Byzantine or Ottoman uh, empire that were doing similar things, um, or, and Byzantine empire. So yeah, I, Fincino's a better example, I guess. That's true. <laughs> um, but there's earlier ones that I guess, yeah, you could say Lul was just a very big root. Um, and Ficino was the trunk. That's that, the, that still works. Lul was just a very big root, you know, as was Jabir, mm-hmm. but but much before. Lul was, I mean, just so, just so the listeners know, uh, and I, now, now I'm probably not going to know it and get in trouble, but Lul was like 13th century, eh? 12th, 13th, so so before the so? but Yeah, 13th century. Yeah, you're okay. exactly right. Okay. All that. <laughs> my, my logo is based off of his thing, so I should I should know that, like, he's really one of my favorites, so. But mm. I got I also have to admit at a bias there. Like, I purposefully seek out awesome articles on Rommel Lul, and I compare Luther to him. I compare, you know, everybody's like, everybody compares to him to me, not the other way around. So... Mm. Um, yeah, yeah. So, but I'm biased in that way, and I need to be aware of that. But, yep, love the guy. So, but, I, but I, like I was saying, I can tell you like Ficino. Like that's, <laughs> yeah, that's cool. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I like him because he, he. Um, uh, I, I can't say he's my favorite. I, I would have to say Griff is my favorite, the, the one that I spent the most time mulling over. Mm. Um, because Epis- uh, episode two come that definitely I uh, got the outline started on on Agrippa. Um, yeah. Still have some reading in front of me though, but oh yeah, definitely. But yeah, so so here we have these essentially the the foundation for all of the analogies that made um made uh, hermetic hermetic alchemy possible in the, in 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 the Renaissance. It's um uh the seven planets, the plants, the animals, Ooh. the zodiac, I all of I, it. I, I think together. I kind of know how Agrippa fits in in your in your story. Uh, he uh, he he was an encyclopedist as well, really. Um, Marsilio Ficino, um, in his three three books on life, he he really only he glosses a lot of stuff, especially when it comes to the correspondences. He doesn't go into a lot of detail. Um, he touches on the the planet's influence on on personalities and yeah. and, and and facial features. He touches on. Uh, certain stones and plants and animals but it was Agrippa who took Marsilio Ficino's three books on life and wrote his three books of occult philosophy um basically 
incorporating all of the little details that Pliny and Ptolemy mentioned and, and, and including it. Um, whereas Ficino didn't have time because he was laying the basics, uh, he was laying the groundwork for a system of magic. Yeah, okay. I would, yeah, yeah, okay, that's, that's what I was going to say. I was going to say, I, yeah, I was going to say Agrippa is, okay, but Ficino already, I guess. Um, because you're talking about sympathetic magic already. You're already talking mm -hmm. about, um, so when, I don't know if I'm going to spoil something by, by mentioning this particular example, but um, later, to give an example, Hennig Brandt discovers phosphorus, okay? How does he discover phosphorus? By distilling his own urine. Why does he mm -hmm. distill his own urine? <laughs> you might ask, at least uh, my rational sane listeners might. Um, Dry cleaning? <laughs> yeah, he wanted to get that stain out. No, uh, he so sympathetic magic. So there's elements of sympathetic magic start creeping their way into alchemical recipes. Um, and it's this it's based off of this type of analogies, these correspondences. So Hennig Brandt distilled his own urine simply because urine is yellow. Just like, mm -hmm. uh, was it Drebbel or um, shoot, I should never go off without. Uh, notes in front of me, but um, Drebbel or somebody was, um, you know, dredging the uh, Danube in Vienna to get to the sand, um, which, which oddly enough, there are, there's gold dust specks in the Danube. So if you did that enough, you would actually mine gold. And he found enough gold to prove his theory. But no, sand is just yellow. Urine is yellow. Gold is yellow. Oh, oh, hey. So if we distill enough urine, you know, we might be able to distill the gold out. If we distill enough mm -hmm. of the um, sand from the bottom of the Danube in Vienna, we might be able to get some gold. Now, that's in my mind, I, I keep thinking of uh, Agrippa. But, you know, um, yeah, um, Ficino might, might have already laid the groundworks for that. That might actually be kind of more of a primary source in, in some ways. Uh, but again, after this, yeah, so magic um, creeps its way into alchemy. Sympathetic magic is what you're mm -hmm. basically describing. Um, yeah. that's, that's yellow, that's yellow. So um, so a good example of sympathetic magic itself is a, or the one that I always go to, my go-to example is the weapon salve, okay? Oh, yes. Um, yes. You're stabbed Paracel by... Paracelsus, yeah. Uh, well, he definitely talked about it. Is he a primary source? Mm -hmm. I don't know. Um, um, uh, he, yeah, he talks about. It. I don't know if he, yeah. he. I don't think he was the original person. Right. To talk I about think it was a. It was a medieval folk folk cure. You know, um, who knows who actually came up with the idea? It was just. Uh, but a weapon salve. Well, so weapon salve is is really old idea, but it falls into the category of sympathetic magic. That's why I use it as an example. And basically, it is you get stabbed by a particular sword. Um, which means you need to do a ritual on that sword to heal the wound, okay? And, yep. and that sword has a connection because that's the one that wounded you. Um, and now you can use, in, you know, as these ideas evolve, you can use stand-ins. You start to, you go all the way to the idea of a voodoo doll. That's sympathetic magic, right? I mean, that's a fantastic example. Um, yeah, you have a stand-in, yeah. which is therefore a connection, a little bit of hair, a little bit of uh, some body, bodily fluids or whatever. And um, that can then stand, you know, give it the form and that, that then stands in for you. And there's a connection there, a magical, a supernatural connection. 
Um, and these ideas crept into alchemy because these ideas were defended. They weren't they were even argued to not be supernatural in some cases, or they were argued to be supernatural, but in a Christian society, they simply, you know, were one more thing that could happen in a society where angels and demons are over every shoulder and, uh, you know, so forth. Um, yeah. So, so, yeah, it was just the way it was just the way it was, period. So um, why not try to distill your own war, uh, your own urine and, and make gold? Um, <laughs> so. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So here's where these ideas kind of tie into. Um, yep. Yeah. So it's that's. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So Facino, he he laid the groundwork. He was his main focus was a was a system of sympathetic magic, really. And um, Agrippa agreed with him wholeheartedly, but uh, felt that there was a lot of gaps. And it's like, why didn't you mention the black poppy plant? That's important for melancholy. Ah, or why didn't yeah. you mention this animal? And so. Agrippa went back to all the sources and made an encyclopedia uh -huh. where he lists, he just lists, 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 plants, all the plants that correspond to Saturn that, that Pliny mentions, all the planet, all the, all the animals and all the stones for each of these different things. Um, yeah, and so uh, Agrippa became the, the go-to um, encyclopedia. What, what Pliny tried to do for animals plants and stones um agrippa did for all of it mm -hmm. the planet the planets the zodiac the human facial features personality ah, types yeah. animals, plants stones uh metals the works yeah mm -hmm. um so yeah he became a go-to text that you no longer needed to to look at ptolemy's tetrabiblos or pliny's natural history anymore because you had Agrippa, and you didn't need to look back at Ficino's three books of life because Agrippa incorporated Ag it all Agri in there. Agrippa was facial features, huh? He tied facial features to. Oh yeah, yeah, Ooh. facial features and everything. Because mm -hmm. face, yeah, facial features, yeah, that comes up again in in, in history. Like that was a. Um, I didn't even think that was Renaissance. I thought that was just like old part of medieval German culture that. The way you look is reflected in the way you are. I mean, um, you know, if, if you are if you look bad for some reason, then God had a reason for making you that way and you kind of deserve it. And oh, yeah, sure. if you think about that, what, where I'm getting to is that had ramifications in the 20th century. Um, mm -hmm. you know, if you know what I mean, like that's oh, yeah. So Agrippa, huh? Great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But oh, yeah. So crazy the, uh, the 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 idea with facial features does go back a lot for, i mean it goes back all yeah, the way to, Agrippa, to, to yeah. ptolemy that's yeah. what I, okay okay gotcha yeah so he was just yeah he was combining all these sources yep mm -hmm. yeah making it easy so all you needed was one book instead of 20 but yeah so all these analogies and correspondences which um which brings us around to the next really really interesting thing which is um why do they all connect why do they correspond to one another? And it, it isn't just the um, uh, physical attributes anymore. Um, when we when we get around to uh, Ficino incorporating forms um, from from Aristotle's uh, theory of matter uh, with the four elements, what we get then is this idea of uh, hidden qualities. So the reason all of these things actually relate to each other 
is because there's a superior agent out there that's imbuing all of these things with similar hidden qualities. And this is what actually allows um, a certain metal to correspond to a certain planet. So whereas previously it, it was um, things like they shared a similar color, whether it's Mars mm -hmm. and iron, mm -hmm. with, the, with the Hermetic tradition in the Renaissance, they, they justified it um, with, uh, with Aristotelian um, uh, matter, theory of matter. Uh, with um, forms and mm -hmm. so but 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 what gives them these forms and what is the result of these forms and uh, so that's when they started incorporating this idea of, of hidden qualities in which actually goes back way 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 back um, to the second century of AD with with Galen Cla Claudius Galen um, with uh, his uh, uh, essay, his treatise that he wrote on the affected parts, and he was the very, very first person to talk about undescribable properties, and he was dealing with medicine, and he wanted to know, like, well, why does this certain medicine have this certain effect? It's basically the side effects of symptom, uh, of side effects of medicines. Mm, okay, and he, yeah. yeah, came up with this idea of undescribable properties that, that were coming from, from the heavens, um, and uh, from there, Proclus picks up on this as well when he combines Pliny and Ptolemy because uh, he was also familiar with, with Galen. And then uh, from there, at the Jaberian school, it was uh, Avicenna, another man of medicine, uh, and his canon of medicine uh, that starts really elaborating more on these undescribable properties, and he starts calling them uh, hidden properties, occult properties. Oh, uh, okay, right. Yeah. Yes, yes. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And then going after that, Aquinas, who is a, a student of Avicenna as well as Galen, um, in his uh, an essay he wrote a very short essay called "On the Occult Operations of Nature," uh, in the 13th century A.D. And he really, really starts getting going into it, and there's actually a really, really bit if I could if I could dig it up and read it right here. So where he talks about. Um, where he talks about uh, images. Okay, yeah, yeah, heavenly bodies. Um, so he says, uh, says, nor can it be said that such activities... He's actually disagreeing. He's disagreeing with, um, with, with Avicenna and Gala mm -hmm. and arguing... He's arguing that these hidden these qualities, they do not come directly from the heavenly bodies, from the, from the seven celestial spheres. They actually come from superior agents that imbue both heavenly bodies and things in nature at the same time, right? Mm -hmm. So the, uh, the source of the hidden quality is not from Saturn and then handed down to lead. It's, he's arguing that at in time, there is this this superior agent that is that is causing this, that is Im, Im, imbuing all of these simultaneous heaven, heavenly bodies, metals, animals, stone, plants, with which, these with these properties, these hidden qualities. Yeah, which which again is not really original because then he's, I mean, okay, so what is that? that outside property that is affecting all these things well that's uh, we don't know what it is but it's basically plato's forms with the capital f you know it's <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah that's exactly exactly what it is the, yeah the, the, the form 
it just goes back yeah it just goes back in circles like okay okay yeah yeah it's yeah yeah oh yeah it's the it's i mean kepler goes back to forms you know when he's describing uh the ratio of the distance of the planets when he's describing octaves in music like i mean yeah yeah it's like oh they all have these qualities and um whatever they are yeah it's it's um it's the forms. Yeah. We'll just call them the forms. It's the it's the, yeah, the, the actor, you know, whatever it is. Yep. Yeah. And of course, Aquinas being being this, uh, you know, the, the big name theologian for the for the Catholic Church at the time, you know, was uh, rather referencing the, uh, the the Greeks. It was a, a, a superior agent. Yeah. Didn't want to quite say it was God, but at the same time, he didn't want to quite say it was a platonic form. Yeah. So, yes, that's a superior I, I was, agent. I think, yeah. Um, yeah, like even Avicenna or, or Jabir had to watch out for that. They had to <laughs> make it jive with Islam in their uh, in their own ways. And they did that in different ways. Um, but, yeah, of course, they couldn't just like take this pagan uh, platonic philosophy at face value. Um, they had to make it, you know, and then, of course, Neoplatonism, there's the one. And so you could make it jive with monotheism and so forth on down. Um, but, yeah, everybody had to do that. So the Arabs had to do that. And then uh, Aquinas and uh, Ramon Lul, again, had to make it jive with Christianity and tried really hard because uh, they liked this old pagan platonic philosophy. Um, but, yeah, I got a facelift. Every time it got translated, every time a new culture took it over, it got a facelift. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 But but always, always, always beating around the bush. You know, we yeah. got we to gotta beat around the bush before it spontaneously combusts. Because the moment that happens is when we have to acknowledge that we, we have to we have to acknowledge that uh well no we're not talking about god but uh, okay let's just go the birth the bush is burning so let's just go ahead and call it yeah. instead of superior agent yeah always being around the bush so they don't actually have to admit like i i do like reading plato come on come on mr pope <laughs> yeah yeah exactly it's like oh uh, well i mean uh, he was no plato's aristotle's no jesus but uh you know he's he was smart too <laughs> yeah yeah it's like yeah. like no no it's no aristotle agrees with jesus aristotle was a christian he just didn't know it it's okay it's okay you know play, yeah. kind of playing this game walking that fine line of trying to bring these old the old sources back yeah. <laughs> and oh Always, always such a tradition to the uh, the the dedications to Christ, the introductions at the beginning of alchemical texts. Uh, yep. You know, uh, uh, does it with his three books of occult philosophy. Oh, this is all in praise of God's good work. <laughs> yeah. Oh well, I mean, yeah. I, so there's a upcoming soon is a uh, <coughs> show on biblical, uh, basically b- biblical figures as alchemists, and a lot of this is. Um, pre-Christians, or not pre-Christian, but pre-Christian alchemy, so Jewish alchemists and and Muslim alchemists, but trying to make everyone from Adam to Moses to Noah to Solomon, of of course Solomon, everybody was an alchemist, everybody knew the Philosopher's Stone, Um, and they, you know, they tried to show this using passages in the Bible, passages in the Quran, and uh, so there's a show on that upcoming. It's just, you know, just trying to make it all jive, trying to make it all work and um, saying, no, we're writing a theological text 
on the philosopher's stone or it's mm -hmm. it, it goes it works with the church because um you know even arabic sources mention solomon as a as a alchemist so therefore i mean you know it's just this the circle of of trying to make it work and and giving it a new kind of a new face and yep but yeah but the, but the ideas go way back way way back so I, I, so yeah so conti continuing on with, uh, with aquinas um so Aquinas, you know, uh, came up with this idea that it's not it's not heavenly bodies that are imbuing everything in nature with these with these with these properties that Galen had pointed out, um, uh, being the first to point it that Avicenna elaborated upon. It was this superior agent, this this mm -hmm. sonic form, right? Yeah. Um, and then from from there, Ficino was a very big fan of Thomas Aquinas and 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 picked up on this, and incorporated it into um into his three books on life and his system of magic. And then from there, of course, it was Agrippa, who then turned around and, and he was he was the the first one in the Hermetic tradition to really he was actually he's he's he was he's the first the first one um to list off all of uh, he all of the things in nature. Um, so not only did he just uh, um, combine the correspondences on Ptolemy and Proclus and Jabir um, and the system of magic of Chino into a single a single work, well, three books, but he also listed off all of the hidden qualities for each of these things. So in, in Agrippa is where we really start to get um, the correspondence charts that we even uh, occultists even use today, and the um, so for example, uh, planet Saturn is hidden quality uh, to sad and melancholy. The same hidden quality for lead and the black bear and the black puppy and the color black, even the symbol for Saturn, yeah, and even the word. Yeah, possesses uh, these hidden qualities. Now so, you're now you're getting to something I want to talk about. The word yeah. Saturn has hidden. So I was gonna say, starting with Ficino again, um, where does Kabbalah come in? Because now the methods of finding hidden qualities they add to they add Kabbalah as a to their toolkit basically. Um, <laughs> Also, already, you know, Lowell was one of the first. Agrippa loved Agrippa certainly, and Ficino knew knew of Lowell and his efforts in turning Kabbalah uh, into a Latin art, basically. Um, yeah. And so then you have, you know, now you have not just the seven planets, but you also have the seven dignities of God, um, tied to the seven, uh, you know, tied to the to the tree of life, the, um, you know, these Kabbalah notions and. Um, anything, because Kabbalah, anything the number seven. So now you can tie anything that Kabbalah has the number seven on, which is a lot of things. Uh, you can now tie those to planets and metals mm -hmm. and uh, and animal. Just go down the line, minerals, animals. Um, so uh, yeah, starting with Ficino and then going on on with Agrippa, you're also looking at the same lists, but now Agrippa got his list partially by the little spinny disc that Rommel Lull invented or something of the sort. Um, these these uh, occult tables like you mentioned. Um, and, and now we're really getting to, oh, Saturn has whatever, five letters, does it? 
six letters okay <laughs> saturn six. has yeah saturn has six letters so does this mineral so does this thing uh in latin in hebrew in greek in um now that's kabbalah you know that that, that is a kabbalah kabbalistic method um, gematri yeah yes it's called gematria isn't yep. it yeah yep so yeah, yeah. I, I just want to bring that up, like, because definitely Ficino gives that lens to it too, and people no longer get away from it after uh, Agrippa for sure. Uh, after Agrippa, if you're looking for hidden qualities, you are using even if you don't know it, you're using uh, tools. Um, I mean, look at you know later uh, Kelly, Edward Kelly, looking at the table, looking at the I mean, looking at the scrying glass, talking to angels. And yet there's that there's that table in front of him. There's the hidden qualities. There's the translating the angelic script to Latin or English. And uh, um, yeah, that's just yeah. So we see this tradition really, really become important for later generations of alchemists. Yeah. yeah. And actually t talking about the, the Kabbalahs uh, after Ficino, um, there's a uh, uh, Gomerandola. Adding, yes. adding on onto this, that was yep. a big influence for Agrippa, and I actually have a really, really neat quote because um, we're talking about occult qualities, as Well, Agrippa calls them occult virtues. Uh, Bruno later on calls them hidden qualities. Galen calls them undescribable properties. It's all they're all talking about the same thing, but hidden occult secret, um, occult being Latin word uh, for for secret, mm -hmm. and uh, and pre talking all about analogies right uh, this is a these, these are all these all relate to one another analogically well there's a really interesting little tidbit here from pico mirandola in his 900 theses and um he says anyone who does not know how to intellectualize sensible properties perfectly through the method of secret analogizing understands nothing sound from the Orphic hymns. From here we're talking about the properties of things, the properties that you can sense, whether it's the elementary properties of uh, to heat, to cool, to moisten, to, to dry, or, or we're talking about the occult properties uh, to, to, to make melancholy, uh, to embolden, to encourage, to anger, uh, this sort of thing. And uh, he's talking about secret analogizing, yeah. And what what he's talking about here is well, in a in a previous thesis, he says that for each natural or divine power, the analogy of properties is the same. The name is the same, the hymn the same, the work the same, the proportion observed. Uh, so essentially, what Miranda is talking about here is that he's connecting the um, uh, the presence of these uh, elementary or occult properties in things in nature with the process of analogizing, yeah? Mm -hmm. So he's essentially arguing that the properties themselves that allow the analogies um, uh, between things. And Agrippa just takes this and he just goes way, way off the deep end with it, um, with listing off all of the different hidden qualities for all the different analogically related um, uh, things in nature, the planets, the plants, the yeah. animals. So, yeah. I mean, in, in some ways, you just got to give time people to compute because people are like, OK, so how does wood relate to, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, emeralds and how does, how does emeralds relate 
to to Sagittarius. And you just got to give people to write these theories down. And so they, uh, yeah, yeah. They, they just get more and more complex each generation. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it, it makes makes perfect I, sense. Everyone's building on the work of, of the previous generations. Yeah, and, and I, I really I really think that um, uh, it's uh, the current, not just the correspondences. Obviously, anybody studying alchemy is going to be familiar with the correspondence charts. Uh, anybody studying natural magic, sympathetic magic, is going to be familiar with the correspondence charts, going all the way all the way up to to now in 2016 with occultists occultists using correspondence charts all the time to to perform rituals or or, or do 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 alchemical work um but it's really for trying to understand the system the how alchemy really works how sympathetic magic really works the understanding hidden qualities what they are how they make the correspondences possible it's really it's like it's like a skeleton key that that unlocks unlocks alchemical texts all the way back through the Middle Ages. And once you understand the hidden qualities are the crux of it, they're what make it possible. You could go back and pick up any any alchemical text from Roger Bacon on on down the line, and, and it'll make so much more sense and just be suddenly so much more accessible um, to anybody that's listening that's going to be making their way to the library after this. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so, so it's really, really interesting stuff. It's fascinating, and uh, and um, yeah, it's ah, it's yeah, it's like it's all its own. It's got its own little way of thinking about the world and how how again words relate to things. Um, yeah, I it's mean, all because of the hidden qualities. That's what that's what made the whole thing possible. It's like when when um. Uh, the idea that that a word possesses the same hidden quality as the thing it describes that alone is, right. it, it, op- right. it opens it up to a whole different world of uh, uh, of understanding of what alchemy really really um is about or was about um in yeah. the middle ages yeah. and the renaissance cuz yeah yeah if it, if a word if a word and the thing it describes possess the ha- same hidden quality then why do i need to touch the thing itself when I can just write about it. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, yeah, yeah you, you got to kind of think about words differently in their minds because um, to a lot of people, words were, so, uh, you know, language was given to man by God and it was man's job to, like, name the animals, for instance. Uh, yeah. But, but they believed that, okay, if you actually look at the name that Adam gave to a deer, uh, so that would obviously be in Hebrew in their in their minds. Um, so if you look at, you know, deer in Hebrew, then that is like, you know, God told Adam to call it that. Like, I mean, you know, Adam called it that. But that's, you know, God. It was a d- divine command. A deer could not be called anything else, which means uh, there's a reason that it's called deer, which means if we can find out what that reason is, we learn something about deer and we learn something about the word itself. You yes. know, and um Everything you're describing, this whole century, this whole millennium that you're describing, is a, metho- a methodology. It's a um, way of of really describing what nature is. The what is matter? What is you know what makes things happen? Um, how yeah. are metals born, if you will? Because that's how they thought about it. 
And they're asking the same questions that we ask today. I mean, the, you know, the people that theorize how uh, gold is made is made at the you know in dying stars and that kind of thing, or when stars are born, um, they're asking the same questions that people asked a millennia ago, wondering how gold is made in nature. And you're describing a methodology that basically Robert Boyle et al. killed and replaced with what we would today call the scientific method, empiricism, um, um, hypotheses, all these things. But, but really what people don't think about today is that they had a methodology before. And that's what yes. you're talking about. And you're talking about the history of science, <laughs> even though you're talking about sympathetic magic and occult tables and all these things, because that's how they computed the world around them. They took these mm -hmm. hidden uh, hidden properties tables and were like, all right, now today I'm going to sit down and I'm going to figure out, um, I'm going to look at the word wood and we'll look at the word emerald and look at and see how they, you know, and write a, write a page on how they're related and what they have in common. And the practical knowledge, uh, the practical applications that you can take away from that. So it wasn't just like, oh, um, you know, uh, gold is born whenever there's this and that conditions in, in the planets uh, or, or the zodiac. No, if you know that, then now you know how to, you know, when to start your, your furnace. Now you know when <laughs> to create, you know, vaporize, uh, distill this, this part. Um, so that knowledge had a practical application, which people yeah. today just think is absurd. But um, yeah, I mean, we discovered phosphorus through these crazy notions and, and discovered all you know porcelain in Europe, and I always give a thousand examples of scientific breakthroughs that happened by using this methodology, uh, which was based on all kinds of you know weird ideas. Um, but but yeah, I mean it's just fascinating. I mean, <laughs> it, yeah, it's it's really neat yeah, stuff. But um, uh, for, for them though, it, you know, it really it really wasn't just about uh, separating the mercury and the sulfur and the salt and then recombining them to create a new metal. You know, like um, the whole the whole idea behind re reducing a, a metal into its form with a capital F was so that you could change the hidden quality. If you didn't change the hidden quality, that was that was it, that was given to the metal by the form mm -hmm. you couldn't change the metal yeah because well, what yeah. what's what, what's the point in turning lead into iron if that sample of iron possesses the same hidden quality as your lead sample that yeah. you began with yeah yeah so that would be that would be someone criticizing like abu fala's methods would be like um you're okay you're telling me in plain text how to uh turn copper and make it look like gold you know that's all fine and good but i don't but you're not changing the hidden qualities which means that if mm -hmm. someone tries to prove that it's fake gold they're going to be able to do it and the exactly. thought was um this comes into a different debate which is like art versus nature is uh, can alchemists what are they doing are they creating art or are they replicating what happens in nature because if they're just creating art they can never fully do it they can never fully um, reach they're just always creating a replica it's never going to be gold but if they're replicating nature what that means is they're changing the hidden qualities meaning yes. that whatever you're doing the the thing in your um in your forge the thing in your alembic the the thing that you're making 
that thing is going to want to be gold. You've now changed the hidden qualities to make it gold. Like it now has the hidden qualities of gold. It will now mm-hmm. manifest as gold. So well, there's, it, yeah. there's no other way it could do. I mean, it's gold is gold. So it's, it's like, no, 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 it's not art. It is real. Like they're not, you know, there are many alchemists that argue that, no, they're creating, not only are they creating gold, the same gold that's in nature, because of we can because we can fine tune that furnace, we can fine tune the heat. We're actually creating a better product. The philosopher's stone is purer than what you find in nature. People argue yes. that. So um, yeah, um, yeah. So it was really interesting to to note that like yeah, they believe that the the, the hidden there's a difference between turning you know uh, clarifying clarifying lead to make it look like silver. You didn't change the hidden properties. If someone wants no. to find out, then they're going to be able to find out. Yeah. If yeah. you've if now, you've changed the hidden properties, that means that that lead is actually going to want to manifest as silver. You know. Yes. Um, exactly. Yeah. Now, 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 now check this out because I'm about to blow your mind. Now we were talking about words, right? And yeah. words possessing possessing hidden qualities. Now think about the enigmatic language that they use to describe these processes when we we divide lead down into mercury and sulfur. And how do we describe that mercury and sulfur? It's green lion and a red lion, right? Uh-huh. Right? So so mercury has been divided into, I mean, lead has been divided into mercury and sulfur. But we describe that mercury as a green lion and we describe that re- that sulfur as a red lion. Now, guess which, which metal lions correspond to? The king of the animal kingdom is, uh, would be, yeah, the lion is gold. Yeah, gold. So, so they're they're they've 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 split mercury in, uh, lead into mercury and sulfur, but they're using the the an, an animal yeah. that corresponds to gold to describe the two and, the two essences now, that combine to make lead. Right. So, if you want to turn lead into gold, you might as well use a, a something that corresponds to gold as a way of describing the process but now is that is that like wishful thinking like if we call it a lion it's going to want to be gold uh or i mean do they have a reason behind doing i mean it's just kind of it's it's yeah almost silly to to just kind of say like okay we're gonna you know if we use majestic words we'll have a majestic product yes Um, but 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 if the if if the words possess possess yeah. hidden qual- hidden qualities yeah. as well then if the words can- have power yes then, then you yeah, can yeah. all you need all you need to turn the lead into gold is the words use crazy language enigmatic language with all the symbolism and the metaphors and all that to describe the change place taking place you you don't even you don't even need a sample of lead on hand you don't even need to touch it yeah i mean there's you just, there, you just write about it there's there's yeah. the other aspect that um because it's esoteric, you're not going to be able to create the philosopher's stone unless you have divine will. Unless you have God's will, you're not. You can follow my directions exactly. You're not going to be able to do it. Um, now, the thinking might have been: if you do have God's divine will, God will guide your hand. So you just read what you think that recipe says, and and it's gonna. If you're blessed, it's gonna happen. Mm-hmm. Um, you know. So it's it's like there's there in a way you're taking responsibility from the author saying, Hey, you just didn't have divine, you know, divine will that's why it didn't work for you. On the other hand, it's like, I don't need to be precise. I don't need to call it, uh, by its chemical name ever. I don't even need to be consistent. I don't, you know, because 
if you know what you're doing, you know what you're doing. You this is just a reminder. This is just um, you know, God will show you the way, basically, if you're meant yeah. to to have it. Yeah. Um, when this yeah. is well, this is one of the reasons why they had so many different names um, and uh, ways of describing a single substance was because they they wanted to describe the substance using symbols that corresponded to what they wanted to change it into. So if we want to if we want to take lead and break it down into mercury and sulfur and we want to turn that lead into gold, it's best to talk about that mercury and sulfur as lions because lions correspond to gold. Yeah. Now if we wanted to if we wanted to take um uh, let's say, well, nobody in alchemy wants to turn gold into lead, but let's say, theoretically, if you wanted to turn gold into lead, you'd break the gold down into mercury and sulfur, and then you would describe that mercury and sulfur as the green bear and the green and the red mm, bear. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. So, he- hence, hence, we have all of these different ways of describing mercury and sulfur because they described the mercury and sulfur in accordance with what they wanted to change it, change the original substance into. Yeah. 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 The language was based on the goal mm-hmm. of that particular, of that particular experiment. So. Yeah. Makes sense. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, putting your foot down and saying, no, we can't do this anymore. That, makes it very difficult for the alchemists to continue what they were doing, especially uh, via the written word. So, so yeah, to, um, going on, on this example of the, the green bear and the red bear, and, and with, with the writing, essentially, the, the writing was a very important element of alchemy. Um, the, the writing of the text describing the experiments that were taking place, and it was, it, it was the writing that really allowed them to, in their minds, to change the hidden qualities because the hidden quality comes from the mercury, which is then solidified, coagulated by the sulfur. And you needed to change the quality um, of the form. Again, going going back to Aquinas with the superior agent, essentially (laughs) essentially the form with the capital F is what provided all of these things with their hidden qualities and um in order to change them you need to redescribe the form the form being the mercury mm-hmm. uh, com- uh, and then combined with the sulfur to give us the metal so <clears throat> when we're turning lead into gold we want to correspond the mercury and the sulfur to our end goal of gold so we use the green lion and the red lion as the the lion corresponds to gold but um uh, the really neat, interesting thing about this is that this takes us even further into uh, the history of the correspondence system with um, what my my research partner and I are calling the, the, the grammar of Hermeticism, um, the grammar of Hermetic alchemy. And if you take a look at um, the people who describe these hidden qualities, uh, Ficino, Agrippa, Aquinas, um, and even later on, Bruno, we can see that they're actually establishing a grammar of Hermeticism, and they are very, very particular about it. It's quite surprising, really. Um, and this is going to be one of the one of the focal points of the paper that we are writing, which is um, currently called the working title of our paper is uh, "Hidden Linguistics and the Media of Magic," um, and the. Part one is going to 
basically culminate in the grammar of hermeticism. But if I could, uh, before we, we move on to talking about uh, a bit of Paracelsus, I'll uh, toss out a few quotes for you guys if you want want to hear. Okay, so we're looking at Bruno and Agrippa talking about hidden qualities. And really neat thing here is, uh, ch check, check the language on this. It's really, really neat. So uh, Bruno talking about hidden qualities, and he, he says that uh, um, in regards to the powers or forms or accidents which are transmuted from, transmitted from subject to subject, some are observable. For example, those that belong to the genus of active and passive qualities and the things that immediately follow from them. And I, when he talks about active and passive qualities, he's talking about uh, the, the, the four elements. Um, and he says, like heating and cooling, wetting and drying, softening and hardening, attracting and repelling. Mm -hmm. Now, note, notice here, he's using uh, verbs in the present continuous tense in order to describe these qualities. And then he goes on and he says, others are more hidden because their effects are also obscure. For example, to be happy or sad, to experience desire or aversion, and fear or boldness. Now, he doesn't say these qualities are happiness and sadness, mm -hmm. specifically using verbs in the infinitive. Now, we go on, go on, on to a bit of Agrippa, and uh, Agrippa says, there are also other virtues in things which are not from any element. He's talking about the hidden, hidden virtues, the occult virtues, uh, as to expel poison, to drive away noxious vapors or minerals, to attract iron. And here again, he's using specifically the infinitives. Mm -hmm. And Okay, so according to Grippa, now we're looking at what Agrippa says about the four elements. According to Grippa, fire is hot and dry, earth dry and cold, the water cold and moist, the air moist and hot. That's from his uh, three books of cult philosophy. Now there, he's talking about the elements themselves, and he's using adjectives to describe But again, he's talking about the elements, fire, earth, water, and air. He's not talking about the elementary virtues. Now later on, when he talks specifically about the elementary virtues of fire, he describes them as to heat, and mm -hmm. to dry again it's the yeah. action they perform rather than exactly yeah, rather it's, than it's an the, adjective like they're dry it's like yeah no they're they're, they're drying they perform an action yep. on something else or yeah yep yeah yeah, yeah. and it, and, it, and it says uh, to, to clar clarify on that grippa later says uh, so great is the power of natural things that they not only work upon all things that are near them by their virtue but also besides this they infuse into them a like power now he's talking about an active agent and if we go back and take a look in the 13th century at what aquinas has to say about occult properties he verifies this when he describes them as active agents. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and, you know, uh, so this is, okay, there's, there's some logic here. There's some rationale here. And, uh, um, I kind of want to point that out is like, you know, where does all this come from? Like, why would people, I mean, where do these ideas even, you know, start? And, uh, um, like, but to give one example is you mentioned, uh, Agrippa mentioned, for instance, magnetism you know, to attract iron, right? And yes. this is like, okay, so it's an occult property in the sense that um, <clears throat> whatever is attracting iron, 
uh, has this has this property that attraction now that's interesting because the attraction is there over some distance you know it's 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 there's a there's an influence over there and now take this mm-hmm. fire okay now fire uh, is not heat but fire has the property of heat uh, and and the property of dry and even if you put something an inch apart like some metal that metal is going to heat up and dry out um so you see the, yes. but but it's not the fire it's the, there's a the, again it's kind of there's the form capital f um dry and hot um but the fire is you know has has those forms but it, the fire is causing the metal to dry it's causing the metal to heat up yes so it, the it, so that this is this is an action, an actual yeah. physical action that is taking place. So it. But but it, now yeah now, now apply it, that logic to to make happy to make sad to I mean just any kind of property mm-hmm. that you take any adjective and you make it a yeah you you know you're saying you're making someone this way. So gold is pure. Gold is uh, incorruptible. Gold is uh, yellow. Gold is um, vibrant. Uh, you know, okay, so you take lo- uh, lead and um, now you take something that will project those forms onto lead. It's, yeah, it's, yeah. That's the logic. It's that simple. And, there, and there's a logic yep. there and there's a rationale and it's – and these are not stupid people. Um, you know, it's just they just had a different way of thinking about this, and it's it's empirical. They're looking at evidence. How the heck do you you know? How does an ancient person uh, describe a magnet? How how can they possibly fathom what is going on there with electromagnetism yeah. without understanding electricity? Um, I mean, you know, or yeah, I mean, for that matter, looking at lightning. What is you know, that is, what properties does that have? What properties is it conveying? What and you just kind of you classify things and and you make sense of magnetism and heat and and this is how you do it. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Yeah, and very very much in keeping with their preoccupation, metaphors and analogies and. And the language that was being used to describe uh, the processes taking place—it—it's—it's it's perfectly logical that they would um, uh, differentiate between parts of speech when talking about the thing itself and the hidden quality. Mm-hmm. So, fire is hot and dry; those are adjectives. The hit, the hidden quality, of the, the elementary quality of fire is to heat. And too dry. So these yep. are infinitives. They're verbs. Yeah. Yeah. And that, so yeah, that, and, that, and that is that is indicative of, of how they thought of what of how they thought about what this is doing in their alchemical process. That, yeah, that, it's it's yeah. It shows what they're it, thinking. It shows how they thought about these you know these actions, the uh, these relationships between fire and the furnace and your your uh, forge uh, your. Um, uh, alembic or whatever a retort whatever it is you're heating up um yeah no it's yeah interesting it, it's, stuff. it's very in keeping with their theory of matter at the time mm-hmm. um and it's uh it it reflects the the grammar itself that they use it reflects their understanding of the difference between a thing and its hidden quality um it's you know the 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 qualities that are uh, given to it by its form, mm-hmm. yeah. So it's yeah, it's it's really really rather fascinating. Also, it's it's really it's all um, 
I mean, at, at the end of the day, I think you could make a really, really solid case for the the idea that um, um, at least hermetic um, alchemy is very much a linguistic practice. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah, um, at oh. at least at least yeah. I mean, you can you can definitely make the the argument that. Um, well, it, it directly, you can make that argument directly just by tying in Kabbalistic methods and saying, no, really, like, words meant a great deal, and, uh, you know, yeah. and, and they were very careful on how they worded things. Um, but, but you can also make the case that it's, that is true because that was their method, and um, their method was, had logic behind it and rationale, and therefore... Um, they're very careful about how they're wording things because they have exact meaning. They're, they are, you know, in the way that they think about things, they're not being sloppy at all when they write things down. Um, even though it seems outlandish, the stories and metaphors and all these things, they, they were very carefully uh, contrived. And if you had the similar way of thinking, um, you could also read it. The people that were meant to read it could also read it. Um, yes. So and comment on it and, you know, make make lucid comments and, you know, not just talk, you know, actually think they're talking about green dragons somewhere. Um, mm -hmm. You know, so it's yeah, there's there's Kabbalah always has that, you know, there's the nominal value. There's like, you know, whatever, five levels of of meaning on any any given word phrase, uh, you know, the the number of letters in a word. And and so green dragon has these different levels levels of meaning. So yeah. Um, yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. One, one, uh, one final quote from from Aquinas, just so mm -hmm. we can take it show show how far back this uh, this idea goes. And he says, "Human words do not have any efficacy for changing a natural body through the path of some natural cause, but only on spiritual substance." So even Aquinas was arguing back in the 14th century, as a Catholic theologian, that human words have a spiritual connection to the things described. Yeah. 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 And uh, yeah. And I, I, yeah. And you hear that a lot too. I mean, as, yeah. like that idea never goes away, I would say. Yeah. No, it doesn't. Yeah. And it's, um, it's so, so it comes no surprise really that Ficino was a strip of Thomas Aquinas. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, and especially, especially this, this treatise in particular on, um, the, uh, on the occult operations of me. Yeah. Me mm -hmm. stuff. <laughs> yeah, cool. But yes, I think I think that about that about sums sums that up. Yeah, for the for the paper. It's yeah. uh, pretty much that's uh, we just yeah, that's from the analogies all the way down to the camera, that's uh, pretty much part one of the of the paper yeah, that I'm writing on. So yeah, I do kinda wanna talk about the the end of this like uh, so so specifically around Paracelsus I would say I, I, I got a question so Paracelsus was still in this camp um, yes and Paracelsus was because so I just I just um, I didn't put this in the notes here but I just wrote I just published an episode on Andreas Libavios and mm. he had a bone to pick with Paracelsus so he liked Paracelsus's actual medicine. Uh, Andreas Libavius carried on the tradition of pharmacology, which uh, Paracelsus kind of not started, but was was um, uh, very important in. And um, he 
but what he didn't like is exactly this, that Paracelsus would describe natural phenomena using supernatural language. And that specifically bothered Libavius. And Libavius mm-hmm. was not as far um, along the way as saying never use supernatural language. He was saying if you um, – some things are inexplainable basically and cannot be known by man. You know, only God knows or we just we – just, we do not have the tools to figure it out and we never will. Some things will remain a mystery to us um, unless God, you know, tells us through divine revelation kind of thing. Um, and he says, and in those situations, and he believed in those situations, cool. Then uh, use supernatural language to describe it, because what else are you going to do? Don't don't dumb it down. Don't take away from the divine by using, you know, by trying to explain it in a secular way. But Paracelsus, don't <laughs> don't describe natural things with supernatural language. And mm. um, so it's like it's like so. I guess what I'm saying is, Libavius is a good example of a of a counterpoint of a someone who who really came after paracelsus and had a bone to pick about all of this these metaphors and and you know strange language um and and he specifically said that it's because it's hard to follow if um, i want to know how to cure my patient and now you want me to decipher something the the guy's dying i want to know how much medicine and, and what kind of dose you know um i want yeah. i want practical applications i don't want to know about green dragons um so but but yeah and, and Lobavius I think uh if I so Lobavius did chemical experience uh, experiments which is why I brought him up on the alchemy show um he did nothing he did nothing original I think I should add so again no he's not a primary source on on alchemy itself he is on medicine to some degree um but he he did get his hands dirty in the lab and everything he wrote on it so he would write these certain uh alchemical things and it would be in as modern language as he could muster you know for the when did he live 17th century early 18th century maybe um yeah something yeah i think he was golden age so yeah early 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 17th century maybe um Mm. but yeah he just didn't yeah he just was like okay so here's how you do this and this these stages and he and he argued for transmutation he argued that you could turn lead into gold um, which obviously he himself never did. So he, but he did write recipes out and how he thought it worked, and in plain text, and as a, a you know, reaction against Paracelsus, and a, a reaction against everything you're talking about, you know. So yeah. and he and he's one example of oh geez, you know, everybody at the time, everybody, but but he was an early example because he was uh, before um, or or around the same time as as Boyle at the latest. At, at the latest, he was around. He was a contemporary. Um, if not before, so yep. um, uh, listeners, don't correct me if I'm long. I, I'm not going to look that up right now, but I'm pretty sure he is Golden Age of Alchemy. <laughs> I'll look it up after the show. I promise. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, but yeah, so yeah. But, but anyways, after Boyle, like you said, uh, that just didn't fly anymore. Now we mm-hmm. had new standards. Now we had definitions of what to call things, and you know everybody was to use them. And those definitions only got stronger and stronger until I mean that. We have a continue, a continued tradition until this very day, unbroken. We still, yeah. you know, there's international uh, conventions on what to call this and that, and what to name a new element, what to name the ninth planet, what to, you know, what, how to classify Pluto. Is Pluto a planet or is he a dwarf planet or is he a orbit? 
whatever you know cloud object um we're, and not th this is this is science this is this has never yeah. stopped um, and not not only that but setting up setting up different different fields so you know where agrippa getting ideas from from pliny and Ficino was saying like uh uh the bear and uh, and this plant um uh, uh correspond to one another because they both hibernate during the winter like what when, when they started dividing it up and saying no 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 we have we have this thing it's called zoology now and, and they're going to talk about the animals and we have this other thing called botany now and they're going to talk about the plants and, and mm -hmm. we're not going to sit here and say that because because the rose has a long stem that it corresponds to the giraffe because that's just completely absurd yeah yeah that's that's also just like I mean, al alchemy is the daughter of philosophy. Medicine is the daughter of alchemy. Medicine and alchemy are sisters um, or brothers, however you think of fields of study. Uh, um, alchemy is the father of chemistry and, you know, astrology and astronomy are cousins. Uh, it, it's, yeah, these, these fields branched off from each other. And it's also kind of a misnomer in a way to say the Renaissance man, the, the people that, you know, okay, so, so Ficino tried to create a universal theory, tie everything together. And we see mm. this later too. We absolutely see this later. Um, but, but at the same time, you're right. After this, we start to, we, there's also a specialization going on saying, yeah, this really has nothing to do in a sense, in a sense. Yeah. This has nothing to do with, but even, I mean, <laughs> it's hard to say because Physics and chemistry to this day is uh, is related. There's applications of chemistry, and then there's like you know studying quantum mechanics, and that's all about physics again on a different level. And um, it, it never changes, of course. But yeah, how you define how you define and classify what you're even talking about. Early, yeah. early chemists were very cognizant of this. Um, you know, saying, oh, there's a quote that I keep forgetting who said it, but he turns around to his lab partner and he basically says, shut up. They're going to call us alchemists. You know, don't mm -hmm. like don't whatever we're working on. Don't say don't say transmutation. Don't say um, because what the hell was it? Uh, was it? Oh, um, not not Marie Curie, but somebody that was working on radioactivity. They're like, holy shit, we just changed one element to another. And his lab partner looked at him and he says, don't you dare say transmutation anywhere in the paper. You know, just don't even, yeah. you know, people yeah. will laugh. And it, no, it wasn't radioactivity. It was in the, it was in the 19th century. Or, yeah, yeah, but they were like, no, no, we have to be aware. We know they, they cannot relate us to the old system. Um, we're, we're chemists. So, yeah, we, yeah. We, 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 have a, we have a lexicon now and we need to stick to it. Yep. Yeah. Now that's essentially what Boyle did. Is he 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 called for a lexicon, mm -hmm. an established lexicon. And like well, yeah. Which again, words. We need a, we, words. We need, I mean, we need a glossary, and each entry can only have one entry. This is not a thesaurus. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Most alchemical texts are not primary sources. Yeah. Yeah. They're 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 not. They're not. Um. And especially when we start going back further and we start looking into commentaries um so yeah. where 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 they would they where they would they would basically do like what i guess historians or philosophers do now where they they talk about um 
uh, they rehash or paraphrase the ideas of an older text, and then they comment upon it. And uh, we call these nowadays, published in the 20th century and the 21st century, we call them secondary sources. But at one time, you know, uh, Ficino's commentary on, on Proclus was a secondary source. Um, and mm-hmm. now it's a pri- now it's a primary source, um, and there's an issue here is with uh, with my research partner and I are finding is that um, we have to limit ourselves to the number of to how we reference uh, current secondary sources because um, a lot of them are they're really they're more commentaries than they are actual like I, I guess what yeah. you would consider like a classical history you know so like you got Christopher Larrick magic and theory and practice which is a, a history of of hermeticism and magic and he comments uh, upon um, uh, Francis Yates and Brian Vickers and Alistair Crowley oh, and right. this kind of stuff right and he has right. his own ideas he has his own ideas about what what magic um is and and he also comments that's a lot a lot on on Giordano Bruno uh, that he, he also has his own ideas about what what the magic meant and so the problem with this is that if we cite Christopher Larrick um in a certain way uh we're essentially rendering him a primary source which is true in a way because it's a commentary just like Ficino and Bruno's works were commentaries on on Proclus and Plotinus and their works were commentaries on Plato and in 200 years Christopher Larrick and Francis Yates um and uh, all the other historians uh Burkhart Kulianu you know they will all be primary sources in a yeah. sense yeah um so it's like, uh, where do we want to draw the line? You know, do we want to stop talking about um, about uh, alchemy and magic at the Renaissance in the in the middle of the 17th century, or do we want to talk talk about it all the way through to the 21st century? Are we writing a history of Hermeticism from from Proclus to Bruno? Or are we writing a history of Hermeticism from Proclus all the way up to Christopher Larrick in the 21st century? Uh, so there's an issue here. Um, so uh, we've decided that um, you know we can we can we we will cite obviously we will cite a lot of secondary sources, um, but rather than quoting them directly and relying upon their findings um, and their arguments as evidence. Uh, to build upon our own, um, we have to go back to what they are citing, yeah. the primary right. sources they are using, mm-hmm. um, and we, we, yeah, we have to draw a very fine line between um, which secondary sources are we using, how are we using them, because in another couple hundred years, those books will all be primary sources alongside yeah. Bruno's essays and Ficino's essays, yeah. So, so yeah. it's, it's it's a bit it makes it it makes it a bit difficult, but it's fun because you know it's uh yeah. Well, it's, uh, I mean how yeah I mean you 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 never escape this. The the oldest extant copy of of alchemy that we basically have is Zosimos. Is he a primary source then? I mean now we're talking fourth century Alexandria. He's a primary yeah. source, right? Wrong. Yeah, of course. No, he's not. He's quoting Miriam the Jewess. He's quoting Pseudo Democritus. He's quoting uh, Austenes. He's quoting. He's just 
he's just one more chronicler writing about people that came before him. Yeah, uh, yeah. He's in no way a primary source, and yet he's the best I got. I mean, you know, my all my uh, I I did an episode on Austenes and on Miriam the Jewess on, and I even quoted other people after Zazamos because the legends grow after their death. So now here's the problem: Miriam the Jewish. Uh, Zazamos may have been Jewish. It's, that's actually not clear, so I don't want to like I don't want to put my reputation on on whether he was Jewish or not. Um, I kind of think there's a good argument to be made. Let me put it that way. There's a good argument to be made that Zazamos of Panopolis was Jewish himself. Uh, the way he spoke about Miriam the Jewish and used uh, Germ- Jewish ter- terminology. Um, that's my evidence. Um, mm. But in any case, um, uh, so later people that quoted Zazamos. Quoting Miriam the Jewess, uh, Miriam Prophetessa, um, the, these later guys were Christians, okay? Or, or Arabs first. The later guys were, were Arabs, knowing full well that um, Miriam was Jewish. And so quoting her in all that sense. But now they add to her because, um, <laughs> because what the heck is a primary source to them now in the 8th century? So to them, already to the Arabs and already to Zazamos, potentially Zazamos is not clear whether Miriam is already Zazamos confuses Miriam with the brother of Moses, uh, the brother, the sister of Moses and a, a female alchemist who lived a century or just a generation or two before him. And he seems to talk as if she were both. And so it makes no sense from a historical point of view. So what are, what are we supposed to make of that? Like, what did Zazamos even, what did Zazamos himself actually believe? Um, so, and then what are later Arabs supposed to make of this when they read this? Now, the later Arabs basically take it at face value on to some degree that um, now Miriam could possibly be the Miriam in the Bible. And so now Zazamos is quoting a text that is as old as the Bible, and therefore an Arab would never say this, and a Jew would never say this, or a Christian, but now we're hypothetically, um, Ficino would say this, by the way. Now we're talking about a text that has the same gravitas as the Bible, and this is what got Bruno in trouble is that yeah. he's now getting this confused. He's now talking about works that are a thousand years apart, but in his mind, not only are there primary sources, they're from the same time period. They're from the same time period as, the, as you know, David, Solomon. Mm. Um, and, and that's just the beginning, because now these Arab sources, you know, now um, when, when Latin chroniclers get their hands on them, uh, um, some of these earlier Hermes Trismegistus is as old as Moses. He has, you know, he's as legendary as, as Moses himself. Um, and, you know, which we now today know that the legend of Hermes Trismegistus is nowhere near as old as, um, you know, the Bible. Uh, yeah. So, but yeah, but, but um, I'm aware of that. You're aware of that. And when we talk about Bruno, when we talk about Ficino, we need to be aware of what they thought. So that is why on on my uh, episode on Miriam uh, Miriam Prophetessa, for instance, of course, Zazamos is my quote-unquote primary source, but I also take later chroniclers into account because who was Miriam the Jewish and the, the Jewess in the 15th century? She was larger than life. She was a legend. She was, you know, divine knowledge, brother of Moses, the whole nine yards. 
you know, she was a near she was a biblical figure. The person who invented the emblembic or described the uh, uh, the Caracos for the first time was a biblical figure in the minds of Bruno and Ficino, mm. right? So, so wh- how does that? So how do you? So now, how do we think about that? Bruno considered that a primary source. So how you know? What are we going to do? So we can't ignore that. Um, and 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 okay. So let me answer your question a little bit, actually. Do we consider now, do we keep talking about Francis Yates? Do we talk about people that came after? Um, well, of course we do. Because Francis Yates, uh, while not being flawless, set some things straight that historians got wrong before. Yes. And later historians set things straight that people got wrong because of the occult revival, because of, because of the Renaissance. People had wrong ideas about the Middle Ages, um, including ideas about alchemy. Um, and these were set straight, sometimes not until the 1970s, 1960s. Um, so, yes, we need to include people from the 1960s, historians from the 1960s and 70s, and historians from the 2010s. Um, yeah. Because otherwise, because they cor- correct previous errors, they shine light on the bias of the occult revival. They shine light on some of the biases that cropped up again, again in the 1960s. Um, so, uh, uh, yeah, to answer your question, yeah, we do. We have to keep, you know, they, they, they tell a continuing story. And, um, now when we speak of alchemy, we say, uh, it was how it was long held until recently that this and this and this, we now know, thanks to Yates et al, um, uh, Newman, I should mention, you know, uh, um, William R. Newman, (laughs) Now, thanks to people like that, we now know, and he's not a primary source by any means to anything. But, hey, yeah. uh, if it weren't for people like that, we would we would still have false beliefs about who alchemists, what they believed, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, oh, man, it, it's a can of worms. It's uh, but yes, what's a primary source? What's a secondary source? That that definition exists. Don't don't fudge those lines. Don't uh, you know? I I just I just say okay. Hey, I'm, you know what? My only source for this show is French Wikipedia, and that's what we're de- dealing with. And I, I use Google Translate, and here we go. And you know, and and that's life. I, you know, and that's all I got. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So. But that's, see, the, the 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 big issue though is that like let let's say in an, in another in another two hundred years uh, when people are people are looking back on uh, let's say oh, we can call it a commentary the commentary that my partner and I are now writing on on the the linguistics of of hermeticism. Um, now, will they view us as commentators upon twenty first century? historians who have published books in the past 20 years or will they view us as commentaries of uh, commentators on the hermeticists of the renaissance themselves that's where we need to right. draw the line is because we are specifically talking about the way that these people in the renaissance thought about and used language how did language work within the paradigm uh, with within the framework that, that they that they were working in um and we don't want our 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 commentary on these these people from the renaissance to be considered at all 
a commentary upon works that followed 300 years after. You see what I mean? So we, we have to draw the line somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, because, I, I, yeah. I see what you mean. Like, I mean, what, what Ficino was doing in, in the 1400s is he was taking, he was taking ideas from here and here and here and putting them together. And he was commentating upon them and saying like, I disagree with this guy, but I agree with this. I disagree with this guy, but I agree with this. And that's essentially what Christopher Larrick does is in, in, in his book, um, um, Magic and Theory and Practices. He points at Francis Yates and he says, I agree with this, but I disagree with this. He points at Brian sure. Vickers. I yeah. disagree with um, he points at um, other historians and says, I agree with this, but I disagree with this. And what was Francis, Francis Yates doing? And she was doing exactly what Ficino was doing. She was taking all of these previous thinkers and putting them in a way um, that her contemporaries could understand. Mm -hmm. So in another 200 years, she will be a primary source in the, in, in, in the history of Hermeticism. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and my partner and I don't want to be in a position where um, in so many years from now we are being considered commentators upon Ficino plus Francis Yates. Right. Well, See what I'm yeah, getting? right. But yeah. now, now here's the thing, and, that, and that's um, that, that, that depends on your own personal goals as far as what you're trying to achieve with what you're writing. And yeah. in your case, because I realized this too, when I when I first cracked a book on Hermeticism, I came across exactly, I mean, you just described my experience. I came across um, Yeats talking about Bruno, who was influenced by uh, Ficino, who was influenced by uh, an old, an old yeah. text he found. Yeah, exactly. But, but you yeah. know, an old text he found that was, quote unquote, lost for 500 years. It wasn't lost. Arabs knew who Proclus was. Um, yes. but, <laughs> you know, and, and, um, but, but so, and I, and me learning about this, I had to peel that onion. Um, and I had to realize I had to first, it took me a, a year, let's say to understand maybe at the time when we had our AMA, I was still uh, following this path of understanding that what I'm looking at is the Renaissance definition of hermeticism. And I need to be hyper. I need to, first of all, really learn that, define it, so that I know exactly what I'm trying to get past when I look at the 4th century. And when I'm trying to figure out what the hell did Zosimos think Hermes Trismegistus yeah. was? And what did he think the Emerald Tablet was? Um, but yeah, but like, okay, I gotta, I gotta forget about Yates. I gotta forget about Bruno Ficino. Um, but honestly... Can I? Because, like, that's how I learned about, you know, I, I, I went back into, you know, I went from more modern sources back. And at some point you reach a level where, yeah, like I could say today that, like, yeah, okay, I, I definitely have some ideas on what Ficino added because, uh, you know, and what, what Bruno added and certainly Agrippa. And, um, yeah, so I could say, I could say, yeah, now I know this. And if, and if I read a more modern author... I go, ah, he's talking about hermeticism, and this is what I wanted to know about, but he's actually not going far enough back. He's not talking about 4th century. Mm. Um, he probably actually has no idea about, you know, he probably can't get past Ficino, because Ficino is, like you said, he's a trunk. Uh, <laughs> and he can't, yeah. get to, he can't get to the roots. And the, and I, but I see that, you see that for sure, and, I, and, and people see that. 
uh, if people are aware of that, then and that's a I'm not a historian. I mean, I'm you know, but that's a historian's job. And 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 it's a you know, it's it's useful. It's helpful if they're clear about that, saying, you know, we're looking at the um, um, it's just like the archaeological evidence. You, you will look at the um, or even go forget archaeology. Look at the fossil record. You know, there's the Jurassic area and the Cambrian area and whatever, but you're going to find... So you're, you'll make generalizations about these eras to make it make sense in your head and to be able to write a college-level textbook, uh, you know. But will it be accurate? Not really, because you're going to have a, thousands, a thousand exceptions to every rule you write, and it's going to be messy, and you're going to be constantly refining what Cambrian actually means or what Jurassic actually means. Or what, yeah. what, what animals really live there. And um, you're redefining the hidden qualities of as you make them, <laughs> as you reveal the hidden qualities, you, um, you know, you, you redefine what it all means. And this is the same with alchemy. This is the same with the history of the occult, the history of science. This is the same with history. You peel back layers, and as you go forward, someone comes along, a William R. Newman comes along, or a Francis Yates comes along, and uh, shines a light and says, wait, 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 we've, we've, been, we've been doing it all wrong. Here's what we're actually looking at. And if you take those guys away, a piece from that puzzle, then your fossil record is... It's messy. You're basically looking at the fossil record of what they had in the 19th century. You're looking at like, um, you know, New Age occult revival kind of things um, because you're not yeah. getting you're not getting past that. So no. um, it's important. So it's important. You know, it's it's um, yeah for for what you're doing for your goal. Yeah, yeah. You gotta. You that's a challenge. That's that's just a. Uh, that's a, that's a, you're like, oh my God, I gotta, okay, I gotta erase Jung from history. I gotta, um, sorry, I even brought up the name, you know, so I gotta erase, um, you know, Ficino and get back to where Ficino got the idea. Um, I love, for that reason, one of the things that got me into podcasting was if you've ever watched the documentary series Connections by James Burke, you know what I'm talking no. about? It's just oh, like it. it's like history of technology, and he'll start a show, and it's like, oh, geez, I don't even. It'll start off with astrology. It'll start off with any given little uh, trivia fact. This guy invented um, this little aspect of the windmill in this monk in 950. Okay, and that, and after that, that caused this, and this, and this, and this, and that's how we get optics. I mean, what you know. And, 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 and it's no gaps. He goes from this guy influenced this guy, influenced this guy, influenced um, Galileo to Kepler to Newton to, um, you know, Marie Curie to Isaac Newton to – and he just goes down the line from this 10th century monk. And it's like, yeah, you know what? But that idea, but that monk, he came up – he actually – he innovated. He had a new idea that no one, no one before him really thought of. And for a century and a half, all these other guys have just been kind of building on that one idea. And every episode is, you know, starts off with a new idea. Um, and it's just, I love that way of thinking. I love that, like, what seems like totally unrelated is important for understanding history. So, yeah. Kabbalah, like, I, when, I started, when I started sitting down and uh, thought about alchemy, I did not realize I would have to understand what Neoplatonism meant. I did not understand that I had to under, uh, realize what Kabbalah meant um, or, or 
Enochian when it comes to Edward Kelly and just like these random, totally uh, Pythagoras. I actually had to look up and do some reading on Pythagoras. You know, who knew? Um, Democrates, like to, just to differentiate between, or Aquinas, to differentiate between pseudo Aquinas and Aquinas or pseudo Democrates and Democrates, I had to look up the real guys. And, and, um, and, and yeah, and, and it turns out it's all interconnected. You can't just take away one part. You have to understand Plato to understand 17th century alchemy. Yes. Totally. Yeah. No. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. You can't get so, away from it. Yeah. I, I could talk about that all day. I mean, that's just, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah and that's, and that's really the major issue is that, you know, you're, you're looking at Francis Yates and, and you're getting, you're getting Francis Yates's definition of hermeticism. Sure. You know? So, yeah. so if, if I, if I want to make, if I want to make new claims about, uh, Let's you know the, the the grammar about the correspondence system about its origins. Uh, do I want to make those claims based upon Francis Yates's definition of Hermeticism, or do I want to do it based on Ficino's definition of Hermeticism? And that's not you know, an easy question, actually. Yeah. Because um, Yates goes beyond Ficino as far as like Bruno and Mirandola, and um, but again, it's also flawed. So. No, you yeah. kind of want to. You kind of want to define it first and foremost. You want to define it yourself in 2016. Redefine hermeticism based off yeah. of everything we now know in 2016. That's your that's your introduction. You know, that's the and you yeah. can't I, you can't get away from that either. Like that's just yeah, um, because you have to answer that question. That's true. You have to answer yeah. that question before you can talk about the grammar of hermeticism. Absolutely. Re, re redefining it based on on the things that were not mentioned by Yeats yep, or are exactly. not mentioned yep. by by Christopher Larrick or William Newman like uh um Which I haven't means... read everything that I haven't read everything that that Newman and and Lawrence Prasip have have published I've read yeah, quite Prinsip, a few of their books yeah, one, yeah he's also but, a co uh, they co-author oh wait am I getting yeah, confused yeah but they co-author yeah, some no, things they, yeah. they co-author stuff together and, yeah. and they're both really really great uh but oh my they, god I they, they yeah. don't <laughs> They don't go into Pliny. They don't go into Ptolemy. No, they don't go and, into yeah, Galen. Gen yeah, you know? generally I'm looking at specific. I'm looking for specific answers, and they talk about other things that are like changed ah. the way I think about, uh, you know, alchemy and stuff like that. But um, yeah, it's yeah they don't answer the yeah they don't go all the way back. You know, um, ah. they don't answer some of the questions I'm, I'm looking for. But yeah, yeah. Oh, fantastic! I cannot recommend Newman highly enough. Um, it's great. It's really great. Yeah. yeah. I mean, just yeah. like, yeah, th yeah. I'm just happy that he's around and, he, you know, because uh, I think he, f he filled many gaps. Like, and, and again, he's just saying, like, you know, again, this and this and this person said this, but he forgot this. And that's and that's how, you know, is he a well, primary exactly, source on anything? That's, Not at that's, all. Maybe that's his, you know, his final chapter, his conclusion, when he puts it all together, I would say primary source. Yes. Yes, I and would. That, and filling in the <laughs> gap, it's 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 exactly what Agrippa did when he looked at Ficino. Sure. And he was like, "Well, Ficino, he laid out a system of magic, but he left out he left yeah. out all the qualities. He left out all these other animals, all these other plants and stones." Yeah, and, and that's and, and that's did, original yeah. thought, and that's a primary yeah. source. Yeah, absolutely. Kind of kind of doing the same thing, you know, like almost like a history in reverse. Really, it's, it's uh, looking at William Newman and and Francis Yates and being like, "Oh, but you left out yeah. this and this." I mean. You know? I could bring up more, uh, like, I don't want to insult anybody as a thing. Like, I don't know how far to talk, take this topic. Um, 
But yeah, there's a lot of bad examples out there, I'd say. Like, there's a lot of people out there that, that uh, are not open with uh, primary sex. So some people do not know what a primary source means, really. And, and that's not... There's a lot of people out there that love to read history and never really took a, a college-level class on history, maybe, and never looked at historiography itself and just, mm. you know, I've read dozens of history books that makes me a historian. And, I mean, I, I studied German, <laughs> which involves history and literature, and I don't, I would never make the claim that I'm a historian. I've taken classes on historiography, and I'm not a historian. Um, but I don't make that, that assumption of people. And, that, and that's the danger. So, in, you know, in yeah. your own works, if you're not saying this is a tertiary source, so beware, um, then you're not being honest. And uh, I don't know, like, I'm kind of nervous about bringing this up again, but I got a lot of flack on the St. Germain episode. And a lot of people saying there are 500 accounts, or, okay, I don't want to make up a number, but there, there are hundreds of accounts over the centuries of first-person accounts saying they've spotted St. Germain, they've and it's, I mean, literally, it's like, you know, it's like saying they've, it's like saying there are millions of accounts of UFOs and there are tens of thousands of accounts of seeing Hitler in Argentina and Elvis uh, this yeah. year. And I don't, again, I don't want to insult anybody, so I'm trying to be careful, but, um, okay, yeah, there's 500 accounts of St. Germain being seen. I'm sorry, guys, there is not a single primary source of St. Germain or of him creating the elixir of life, not a single primary source eyewitness. There are hundreds of secondary sources and thousands of tertiary sources over the centuries, even contemporary, not one primary source. And I just like, that's it. I drop the microphone and I leave the room. But it pisses people off because there's like, but wait a minute, there's hundreds, there's dozens, there's in his lifetime, there's this uh, duchess and there's this. And like, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. And they're all talking about this thing that happened. They're not, they're not, they're not talking about what they're seeing. They're talking about what they saw St. Germain do. It's not a, pri mm -hmm. I'm sorry, guys. It's not a, they knew him personally. They were contemporaries, not a primary source, not a primary source. And, um, and it's just unfortunate. It's just, um, honestly, cause I don't, I don't think, I mean, these are really bright people, but uh, just not people that understand the, what it takes to really get to the bottom of an idea, get to the bottom of original thought. Um, yeah. you know, People looking at people looking at um, a lot of the modern 20th century alchemical and occult traditions, and I respect a lot of them. But you all, I also understand that they originated in the 19th century, and a lot of people that uh, have these traditions don't, and they believe they tra or, uh, started in the BC era or in uh, Pharaohic Egypt. And I'm sorry, guys, <laughs> they didn't. Um, yeah. you know, and, and it's like, and it's all good. If you know that, if you know your history and you know who did what and you know, which authors in the 19th century started these movements and, and it's all good. Jung, <laughs> God bless him. <laughs> um, you know, if you understand Jung, then, then you understand, then it's, it's all good. I don't even, I don't even hate Jung then it's, it makes for a good reading, but people don't understand. 
and that's dangerous. And Jung is wrong, and therefore I hate him. You know, he's he's put in the wrong light. If people don't know what I'm talking about, that's I'm okay with that. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna give him more airtime. But <laughs> but yeah, oh yeah. It's... I mean, I, I feel your pain with um yeah answering these questions and and trying to get to the bottom of it all. I mean, it's really yeah. interesting stuff what you're doing about about the, about the secondary sources. It's really it's really an issue. I I told I told I told my research partner, and he he totally gets it and agrees with me. I told I told him that like. The moment that we find ourselves beginning a paragraph with according to, insert the name of a modern historian here, so-and-so from the Renaissance said, yeah, that's yeah. it. That's it. Yeah, we got to yeah. start over. Yeah. You yeah. can't can't do it. You know, I, I, don't, I don't want yeah. – yeah, it's a red flag. I don't now, want I, I do that I all the freaking time. If I can name drop Newman or Yates, I do. I'm just gonna be blunt and honest. Like I just, I just love those guys, you know. You know, and I just, yeah. I'm like, okay. I mean, yeah. According to Newman, Al Razi said this. Like, hey, you know, or even other history podcasters. I'm like, hey, Peter Adamson, you know, wrote a book on Al Razi, and he said, and it, and like, I don't, I can't read Arabic. Peter Adamson does, so I, I'm not quoting Al Razi. I'm quoting, I'm quoting uh, Peter Adamson's translation. Um, hey. <laughs> You know, um, yeah, but when but, when you're but when, be on, I think, be open, be transparent, make your footnotes count. Uh, yes. Explain that's a tertiary source. Yes. That, you know, don't lie to your readers. Don't lie to your listeners. That's that's the problem I got. That's that that to me that speaks of fraud, and I got I got issues with that. Also, also the other the other thing is like is like also like what what is not mentioned that wasn't noticed like, like we're, when we're we're making our argument about uh about the the grammar um as you saw heard in, in the quotes earlier from Agrippa and Bruno and it's it's very very delineated i mean these guys are making it a point to distinguish between the thing itself and its qualities by differentiating but uh, by using adjectives for one and verbs for another and so in, uh, a historian like uh, Brian Copenhauer, who I, I really I love his stuff and I love his research when, when he writes about um, uh, occult qualities in in Ficino and Agrippa and Mirandola, um he he doesn't he doesn't mention how they describe them. Mm, so he's okay. not, he, he's he's not mentioning the the grammar at all so for us it's like yeah well, well the only way we're going to answer this question is if we go back right what was he citing what page was he citing okay let's go back to that page now what parts of speech are they using to describe the hidden qualities oh they're using verbs specifically in the infinitive right ah okay and, and yeah. with the way alchemy is the way that we were talking about you're using 12 different ways to say the same thing yeah. uh you know do people really understand that? So if you just say, uh, according to Al Farabi, uh, Al Farabi believes this and this, and you're and you're paraphrasing him, <laughs> are you really yeah. taking the same meaning that he meant? Uh, you know, because uh, I mean, it's it's really it's really dangerous. So if you're not quoting him, if you're paraphrasing, and I'm super guilty of this, I just I lump alchemists together, saying these six guys said talk about philosophical mercury, as if it's all the same thing, and I you know and I know better. Um, but yeah, I mean, sure. Is you have to go back, look at the footnotes, go to their sources, look at the footnotes, go to their sources. Um, you know, look at like, oh, you go back to people that don't have footnotes and you're like, okay, 
where did he get this? You know, which, okay, great. Yep. I got a name. What work? Am I going to have to thumb through everything? Um, oh, yeah, sure. Um, it's like it's like with Paracelsus, where, where people have argued, you know, Alan G. Debus, he's the, the leading historian um, on, on Paracelsian alchemy. And, you know, even in his works, he says uh, Paracelsus had this idea of mercury, sulfur and salt. Right. Yeah. But if you actually go back to the original Swiss German, you can see that Paracelsus differentiates between mercury and sulfur and salt with 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 lowercase letters and a pure mercury with capital letters and a chaotic sulfur with capital letters so he's actually dealing with two different types of sulfur two different types of mercury and one type of salt so you know it's like do you do you really want to make an argument based on what alan gd this is saying you, yeah, I think I, mean, I, yeah. I think i think you always it's always best to always go back and find the book Unless right. it's unless it's a term paper for a, for an undergraduate history course, that's that's cool. But if you're actually trying to publish in a peer-reviewed journal, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, you 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 gotta go back. You gotta go back. You can't just say that like, oh, because everybody agreed with Alan G. Debus. Well, that's because everybody didn't go back and look at the original Swiss German. Right. Sure. Yeah. 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 I got. I gotta. <laughs> I got a quote here about uh, from from Paracelsus where I think he actually mentions the chaotic chaotic sulfur. Yeah, in, yeah, yeah. In German, you want me to you want me to read that real quick? Uh, yeah. Can you so read it me, out loud? I'd love it. I'd me, love to hear. It. Let me. Um, I'm going to make it a little bit more high German because he actually still uses the Latin um, like V instead of U and F looking thing instead of S, and it's not quite modern high German. But I'm gonna I'm gonna just kind of make it a little bit more. Hi, German, if, if there's any German listeners out there. Um, but okay, so here's his uh, Paris, Paracelsus quote. Um, wann, nun, wann nun diese Union vollendet, so entspricht daraus ein reiner Mercurius, welcher so er durch die Luftröhren, Luftröhrlin, that almost sounds like Swiss, uh, und heimliche Gang der Erden, und deren Adern durchschlaft und dem allgemeinen Chaot, well, in modern German, chaotische Sulfur oder Schwefel, he writes Schwebel, which I guess is uh, older German, um, or older spelling, yeah, interesting, Schwefel entgegenkommt, wird, uh, wurde durch den der Mercurius koagiliert nach Art und Gelegenheit des Schwefels. Excellent. <laughs> Which in English basically comes down to um, when this union is completed, there results from it a pure mercury, like you mentioned. So, mm. ein reiner mercurius. And mercurius is, you know, the Latinized form of mercury. Um, now, if this, when flowing down through its subterranean passages and veins, meets with a chaotic sulfur, the mercury is coagulated by it according to the condition of the sulfur. Now, it's, it's important to note that the very beginning of that, when he says, when this union is completed, what union he's talking about, and the union that he's talking about is the union of lesser mercury, sulfur, and salt. Yeah. And those yeah. result result in a pure mercury. So we're actually dealing with five different substances. 
the mercury, mm -hmm. sulfur, and salt with the lowercase le letters yep. that combine to make the pure mercury, and then that pure mercury is coagulated by a, by a chaotic sulfur with a capital S. So this is this is the thing is that it, Paracelsus didn't just add salt into um, the alchemical paradigm. What he did was he he added a lesser mercury, sulfur, and salt altogether in order to describe where pure yeah. mercury comes from. Yeah, you know what? That's not even... Um, I've come across that before. I'm going to quote Abu Fala, but he's not a primary source. Um, but he mentions the exact same thing about... <clears throat> he calls it a philosophical mercury. Well, and, I, he's, eh. and he says, take your mercury, uh, take your um, sulfur, put it together... Now you have your philosophical mercury. That's the mercury we're, we're talking about for your base, uh, for your raw material as f for making the philosopher's stone. And, that's and, the form yep. with the capital F. Yep. That's the form with the capital F. That's what possesses the hidden quality. So that is, yeah, that is the, exactly. That is the mercury, whatever the ideal form mercury really is, that is it. That's what you're, yeah. that's what you're trying to get to. And that's the mercury that can make gold um yes so but and, yeah uh, but so this that same in between step two different kinds of mercuries um abu Fala's what uh, uh 11th century no um that's i'll get um abu Fala is yeah but somewhere in there 12th twelfth century or before so yeah mm. i mean so oh yeah yeah this that idea has been around that that language has been around and uh, uh, Roger, I've got a, I've got an excellent quote from Roger Bacon that also backs this up. Uh, Roger Bacon from his book, uh, The Mirror of Alchemy, and he says, "As a, and as a man may see in the foresaid veins of that place, you remember Paracelsus said veins, mm -hmm, right. yeah, that sulfur, capital S, engendered of the fatness of the earth, as is before touched, meeteth with the argent vive, capital A, as it is also written." in the veins of the earth and begetteth the thickness of the mineral water. Now, what Bacon is talking about here with sulfur with a capital S and argent V with a capital A, that's the chaotic sulfur and the pure mercury that Paracelsus mm -hmm. are talking about. So, so this is what Alan G. Debus got entirely wrong, was that what Paracelsus did was far more profound than just say, oh, we need salt to represent the body. No. He took Roger Bacon's ideas and the Jabirians' ideas for mercury and sulfur, and he and he broke mercury with a capital M down into three substances: a lesser mercury, lesser sulfur, lesser salt. I, I think um, even the idea, yeah, Paracelsus. Uh, that's what makes Paracelsus Paracelsus. I guess is that everybody after him was basically quoting him. Um, yes, but the even the idea of salt, of course, goes way back, and you have like I really like um, is oh shoot, why don't I have this in front of me? Uh, but like Al, Al Ghazali, I believe is uh, Al Razi or Al Ghazali is the one that that is really known for like classifying different minerals and mm. salts, you know, salts and, and other minerals and um, putting these again into their you know based on their qualities and what they have in common. But, but he was also an alchemist, and he wrote a lot about it, and already you see that he would recommend different salts, quote-unquote, you know, different salt minerals um, for alchemical processes. He, I believe it just wasn't 
um, so with Paracelsus, you really speak of the trilogy, the trifecta, salt, salt. salt mercury, and sulfur. <laughs> um, whereas Al-Ghazali is like, salt was definitely in the recipe. Absolutely. It just wasn't like, philosophically speaking, it wasn't, uh, you know, on that level. It didn't represent the body, like you said. It, 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 it you know, wasn't that um, primary raw material it just kind of it was part of the recipe um mm. but yeah exactly paracelsus put it all together and since him it was that's what it was it was salt and that's another problem if you read about alchemy today if you read about um you know just the uh, you know just the beginner's guide to whatever it's going to tell you salt mercury and sulfur meaning they're not really they're talking about paracelsian alchemy they might mention lull in the next uh chapter but they're not being coherent about what alchemy meant at what time period yeah um, and you know yeah. exactly what i mean i mean <laughs> if i'm being confusing to my listeners uh yeah but you and, know exactly what i mean like that so you know you have to define alchemy almost every century yes um, yes at least when you're talking about recipes when you're talking about you know how to make the philosopher's stone um because and why the... they believed you know that that recipe would lead to it that changes mm -hmm. all the time with every alchemist almost yeah the the, in the interesting thing here that's going on with Paracelsus, uh, oh, by the way, by the way, we forgot to mention this, uh, all, all of this is coming from his uh, treatise called Aurora Philosophorum, um, okay. uh, which yeah. is his re recipe for the Philosopher's Stone. But uh, the interesting thing that's really about this is, is that, that if we're looking back at, at um, uh, the, the uh, alchemical texts where, where they the we were talking earlier about changing the hidden quality and it's the it's the pure mercury and the chaotic sulfur that that possess the hidden quality um and that's right. what you need to change before you before you can recombine them you need to change yes. them so the pure mercury being being the the the, the soul of it is um the the essence that yep, is then coagulated exactly. To make to yeah. make a harder substance, an actual physical substance, the pure mercury is what possesses the hidden quality. So when when Paracelsus breaks pure mercury with a capital M down into a lesser mercury, sulfur, and salt, what he is he is he is philosophizing about what constitutes a hidden quality. Yeah. Okay. Right. Yeah. So it's but, it's. Yeah. I mean, even then, every yeah, yeah, yeah any, any, I mean? every philosopher could have their own take on that too. Yeah. Um, and I'm I'm sure many disagreed with Paracelsus, you know. Um. But yeah. But yeah. His yeah. So yeah. So it's 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 yeah, just fascinating stuff. <laughs> yeah. Well, oh, I was gonna say something else about Paracelsus, but yeah. Anyway, I mean, uh, for the listeners, we I've done a I've done a show on him. We talk again every alchemist after Paracelsus. Uh, we I mention their thoughts on Paracelsus. <laughs> so so yeah. I mean, there, there's far more out there on him on the podcast, and uh, even the AMA. There was there was things about him. So you can go listen to that episode too, or go read the AMA directly. If yeah. So if you want to find the AMA, go to thehistoryofalchemy.com. Go to the AMA Reddit uh, episode, and then there's a link to it there. So that that might be a easy way for my listeners to remember that. But yeah, that's that's it's good reading too. There's more questions, you know, there that we never got to. But yeah, boy, I I know we could talk for hours. Uh, I yeah. mean, we could. <laughs> we have. We already have. <laughs> I mean, for additional hours. Um, yeah, yeah. But I don't know. Okay, I guess. I mean, yeah, this is all just great stuff. Um, I, I want to put another poem of yours in there. Maybe I'll save it for the end. Um, yeah, 
so I know we could talk about alchemy and related topics and all kinds of um, subjects and themes for hours and hours on end. I think this yep. is getting to be about three hour uh, episode, so we might as well cut, <laughs> we might as well cut it off. Um, I'll, I'd be happy to have you on the show again. This has been a lot of fun, and um, I, I gotta say, it's um, to my listeners. Rob, that is Robert Olson. In case you end up googling him, looking for him, um, you can you can find both of us on you know in the Ask Historian subreddit, and keep an eye out in future for any books, poetry uh, written by by Rob, and you know now even some some clever answers by Rob on on Reddit's Ask Historians. And I will be back soon with another History of Alchemy podcast. It's been an honor and a pleasure to have you on the show, Rob. Thanks a lot for coming in. This Thank is, you for this, having me. This is far overdue. So, yeah, thanks a lot. It's been great. Yeah. And the, I, the History of Alchemy podcast is a member of the Agora Podcast Network. So if you run out of alchemy shows and then my History of Germany shows and all the other shows I do, then we got fantastic... Um, uh, shows that are in the Agora podcast network, which are great history of like when diplomacy fails is a really known one. Um, uh, American biography. There's all kinds of good shows out there and we do collaboration. So um, I, we're, we're a proud member of the Agora podcast network. And so until next time, I will let Rob leave you with a poem. All right. Thank you very much, Travis. It's, it's just so awesome. Awesome doing this with you. Um, well, let me see. Uh, so this uh, this last poem that we're going to close with is actually it's from the same collection as the one that we started with, the one that we started with about Robert Boyle being a prologue to a series of uh, essentially reworked um, nursery rhymes um, about the uh, slow death of nursery rhymes in, in 21st century culture. And uh, this one is about Jack and Jill. And uh, it's... Um, if you remember the one that we opened with that last line, uh, rearranging the symbols. Um, so, yeah, that's what this is about. Jack and Jill. I rolled down to the old well at the bottom of the hill where the wind grows still and the short lives of dandelions lengthen in the chill. I rolled into the old, lowest stones half buried in the ground where dewdrops still abound and the thirstiest of nature's smallest creatures gather round. I licked the stone beside my head to taste dawn's precious flood, where frost might kill the bud, and what cool water should taste freshest should not taste warm blood. I rolled down to the old well at the bottom of the hill, where the wind grows still, and the brightest lights of morning fairies darken in the chill. I rolled into the lowest stones, half swallowed by the ground, where shadows now abound, and what once harbored magic harbors silence all around. I picked the stone beside my head because it settled best, where time undoes the rest, and what remains of this old well fills pails at my behest. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.